nerds. It's time to suit up and nerd up. Launching badass rockabilly track. ANS protocol is active. Now loading horror countdown special. Time to save the world with some wrestling, video games, movies, horror, and more. Launching ANS in 3, 2, 1. Welcome to the Amazing Nerd Show. Hey, this is Christian. Hey, this is Damon. And this is the Amazing Nerd Show. All right, so welcome to a very special edition of the Amazing Nerd Show. Uh, this week, we're doing things a little differently due to some unforeseen technical difficulties that are just getting in the way of us bringing our usual smorgasbord of nerdy goodness to you fans. Uh, because apparently Adobe hates my computer. <laughs> in the bottom half of this episode, we're going to be delivering you an early Christmas gift with our Best of Horror Month countdowns. So what that means is this episode will feature us counting down our favorites from an array of horror subgenres, including our favorite slasher films, zombie films, ghost films, and remakes, plus a whole lot more. But don't fret, because before all that happens, we're going to be breaking down the latest episode of Hawkeye still. And also for you wrestling fans out there, stay tuned for our wrestling horror gimmicks countdown list at the end of the episode. All right, but before we move on, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're at it, give us a five-star review and DM us a screenshot. Not only will we read it on the show, but we'll send you some amazing Nerd Show swag. All right, Christian, without further ado, let's talk some Hawkeye, episode four, titled Partners, Am I Right? Warning spoiler alert. Major spoilers for the Hawkeye series ahead. You have been warned. The CB1 has trouble opening up. Uh, nobody calls me CB1. I'm just trying to help for a second. Probably some early childhood thing. He thinks he doesn't tell me much, but he ends up kind of a virtual tower, it. nothing. Um, but yeah, I think it's because I'm generally just pretty chill. You know, I'm not like, oh my god, Hawkeye. <laughs> Definitely not chill. So to start, I guess we have to, you know, throw out our speculation from last episode as this week starts right where we left off. And, well, Jack and Clint don't seem to know each other. In fact, Jack doesn't even know the proper hero name for Hawkeye as he proceeds to call Clint Archer. So, yeah, last episode, we're speculating that these two, you know, characters would have a history together, kind of like in the comic books. But apparently that's not so. We also find out that Kate's mother, Eleanor, has been home as well, which of course causes Kate to be grilled on why she's working with an Avenger. In this scene and many more to come, Kate proclaims they are partners working together on a case. While this conversation is going on, Eleanor is alerted to the fact that someone attempted to use her account and gets Kate and Clint to admit that they were the ones that did it. But while Eleanor does speak like she disapproves, something feels off altogether. She almost comes off way too nonchalant about everything everything going on. Yeah, right? Like, it's not every day an Avenger shows up in your house, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> especially, like, an Avenger that your daughter's been, like, worshipping for, like, years. Mm -hmm. So it almost feels like she was kind of, like, expecting them at this point. Like, she's probably getting information from someone else that, you know, what's mm. going on, you know, perhaps. Yeah, because, I mean, he, she could have at least been a little bit more appreciative. He actually saved her daughter's life uh, during that moment, you know? Right. Right. I don't know. Also, I don't know about you, but like overall, I found Jack's character to be a lot more likable this episode. And I'm sure that was like purposeful. I know mm -hmm. you just hate stepfathers, 
in general because of some kind of like childhood trauma that you've gone through. We're not going to dig though this episode, Christian. No, yeah, this isn't therapy. Yes, so, that's a whole different podcast. But yeah, no, he just felt a lot more likable. But there's obviously a reason why because the other shoe drops eventually. Eleanor then proceeds to walk Clint out, and as she does, she expresses concern for her daughter and tells Clint to not let her be a part of whatever this case is. Clint, while he doesn't promise not to get her involved, does promise her safety. And as he leaves in the elevator, we actually see that he has stolen back the Ronin sword from Jack. Meanwhile, though, Eleanor quickly makes an urgent call, but to who is the question, as she seems pretty frazzled for having Clint in her house. Yeah, after Hawkeye leaves, it definitely feels like she kind of lets her like chill facade down. Um, mm -hmm. I did find the conversation between her and Clint interesting at the elevator, though. Like, it really felt like she was trying to manipulate him by bringing up Natasha. Like, it felt sincere at first, but then, like, she stretches just a little too much when she asks him to, like, drop the case. Like, why would that mm. be concerned? Like, you know, the case that he's on. Like, it should just be more yeah. about, like, you know, just leave my daughter out of it. But the fact that she was almost like, I don't know, it felt like she was prying almost like, are you going to drop the case? Like she was more concerned about the case than really like Kate's safety. Now, do you think that they're throwing this in our face a little too much? Do you think it's, that this is, again, another red herring? Could be. That's definitely a possibility. They love mm -hmm. the red herrings over at Marvel. So, <laughs> I mean, I do feel like she has some connection to whatever's going on. You know, the mystery that's you know, slowly unfolding here. Um, I just don't know how deep her connection goes. I just don't think I'm going to ever be able to trust anything after the boner moment from Scarlet Witch. So. <laughs> that's true. Like, I don't think the show's going to go as far as, like, making her, like, mad a mask or anything, which a lot of people are speculating on. Um, but I do feel like, you know, eventually it's going to, you know, show that she does have some kind of connection to Wilson Fisk and everything that's going on. Hawkeye, after leaving the apartment, reaches out to his wife, Laura, after he had actually messaged her about Sloan Limited. And we get a revelation that not only is Sloan Limited laundering money for the tracksuit mafia, but it's run by Jack Duquesne as its CEO. Again, we get another mention of the big guy here as the web of people connected to this larger crime boss grows and grows. Laura also asks about the Rolex that we saw earlier on in the show and asks if it went missing as well, though Clint was already under the impression that it had been destroyed, but now realizes he might have to take a look into it because the Ronin suit was also supposed to be destroyed. So, like, I'm getting, like, strong, like, former spy vibes from Laura, like... Has it been established that she used to work for S.H.I.E.L.D.? No, I think Tony might have thrown a line like, hey, this is some agent shit back in Age of Ultron. But beyond that, there's not really been anything alluded to her being an agent. Really? Because I know he commented on like not knowing that Clint's family even existed, mm -hmm. you know, in that one scene when he first like they first go to the farmhouse and everything. So... I mean, it just makes sense because of the way she's acting in this scene in general, like, you know, switching to another language no, to try oh no, and like hide absolutely. stuff up and that's everything. That's what makes me think that, you know, that's why I was wondering, like, did they establish this somewhere else or? No. So that, right? That's not just common knowledge. So, okay. Well, it seems like they're definitely establishing it here. Then. I did like that, you know, we still, even though, you know, the mom's trying to be secretive and stuff like that, you know, the daughter points out it's dad and stuff like that. And, you know, we're still getting these moments of the family frustrated yeah. that Clint's not home and stuff like that it's it's those little touches that make you know things a little bit more special here and there so you got any new theories about this watch later on in the episode 
when they're in her apartment, they're searching for the watch. He mentions to Kate that, you know, it, it belongs to someone who's been out of the game for a long time, but his identity is still attached to it. So it makes it feel like it belongs to someone who's still alive. Because before mm -hmm. we we're kind of speculating that it might be like, you know, one of Tony's, especially since it's like a Rolex. Um, but like, I don't know, like I started thinking maybe it was like Nick Fury's. You know, um, I started thinking because Laura brought it up that it might be hers and or it would be someone else that worked for S.H.I.E.L.D. I mean, he would obviously want to protect Laura, you know, especially if it was her identity. But he does say he. He's been out of the game for a long time. Now, he might just yeah, be trying to throw it out. he could just be protecting, yeah. To mm -hmm. Kate, though, you think? I mean, they, I mean, if they've kept it a secret this long, you know, he, it's just second nature, right? I guess. <laughs> I guess. Maybe he doesn't want to let Kate know that, you know, Lauren mm -hmm. used to be a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent also. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Control the um, flow of information. I don't know. I'm going to stick with Nick Fury or someone on that level just because I don't know why, like, a random agent would have... You know, their property stored at like Avengers compound. Exactly. I mean, because especially since it feels like it's someone who's still alive. I, otherwise, I would go with like maybe Coulson because mm. that seems like someone who would have their stuff right. like, laying around Avengers Tower. Yeah. Yeah. And it would it would have like some kind of like sentimental meaning also. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I don't know. Who knows? Not us, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Back at the Bishops, Kate seems to have her first positive interaction in the series with Jack, as she shows interest in how happy Jack is making her mother, Eleanor. But at the same time, you know, in the show, it's looking more and more like Jack and Eleanor might actually be the main villains of this season. I really like this moment. It was nice to see Kate, like, starting to come around on Jack once she realizes exactly, like, how happy, you know, he makes her mother. Um... Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, there's like a dark cloud above all this just because, you know, we just found out that Jack is definitely somehow like involved in this like criminal conspiracy. Back over to Clint, who is now alone at Kate's aunt's house, finds himself interrupted from nursing his wounds as Kate storms in with holiday cheer. Kate attempting to make up a little of the, you know, Christmas time that Clint has lost with his family has brought movie night to him with all the holiday classics, along with some pizza, of course. So even though it was a little sitcom-ish, I was glad Kate showed up to save the day because it was going to be really depressing watching Hawkeye like nurse all his wounds, you know, using those drink, drink mixers. Use what you got, Damon, all right? Apparently. Here, Clint discloses that Kate was right all along about Jack, which leads to the two starting to make up plans for what comes next while also getting the apartment nice and festive. During the festivities, Clint also shows Kate that he can do more than just trick shots with arrows, but actually any projectile as he flings this coin-like ornament at the TV's off button. This was a nice reminder of just how badass, you know, Clint really is, because he could pretty much kill you with a fucking coin if he wanted to, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love one day to see him, like, fight with, like, Bullseye, if they ever bring Bullseye into the MCU, because that'd just be, like, an epic fucking battle. One that we don't mm -hmm. get in the comics a lot, actually, because you would figure they'd be, like, natural arch enemies, but, I mean, Bullseye's just too obsessed with Daredevil, I guess. He does disguise himself as Hawkeye, though, uh, when he joins the Dark Avengers. So he hmm. does go by Hawkeye for a length of time. So there's that. But all fun and games aside, this scene also gives us a look into Hawkeye's past with Natasha and how he helped her get out of the Black Widow program after originally being sent on a mission to actually kill her. With the many things that are being revealed in this scene, Kate actually finally puts it all together when she realizes after Clint lost his family in the blip, he became Ronin. This explaining why Clint can't accept her admiration as he sees himself as nothing more than a weapon pointed at the right target and can't accept the title of hero. Clint would then go on 
on to have nightmares of the horrors he's been through. You know, we see his family right before the blip, his time is Ronin, and, and then the moment where Natasha jumped off to get the Avengers the Soul Stone. This scene was just masterfully done, like just watching the two bond and then like, you know, revealing all the trauma that Clint has been through. Kate putting together the pieces of him being Ronin, which I think she kind of started to suspect last episode, uh, but mm -hmm. really like putting together the pieces and then just like the insight that we got, you know, from Hawkeye, like how he perceives himself, you know, as this weapon, as this killer. I don't know, some, you know, just great writing that we wouldn't necessarily get, like, in an Avengers film. Just because, you know, not because they don't have great writing in those films, but just because they're not going to do, like, a character introspective, you know, moment like this. You know, especially for a character like Hawkeye, because they just, you know, obviously don't have the time. Exactly. I mean, the way that they've managed a lot of it throughout the show has been impressive. I mean, this episode alone, just this scene alone is just unpacking so many different moments that tell us so much about who Clint is, about what he's been through. And it's allowing Kate to actually get an idea of what it would be like to be her hero, which is very much, you know, not as you know heroic as she possibly thinks it is. No, it's definitely not glamorous. Like being Hawkeye, he is just the archer, if you will. Mm. The next day, the two decide to, you know, act on their plan and take different tasks. All right, so before we move on, let's talk about this mug that Clint's drinking out of in this scene, because we didn't talk about it in the first episode, this whole like Thanos is right thing going on. Uh, you know, he sees it spray painted in the bathroom, right? And then he, we see the mug at Kate's apartment. What the fuck is this? Like, I feel like this feels like so off to me that like Kate, especially, would have this mug her aunt has the mug <laughs> no you're right i guess it is kate's aunt's apartment but like would clint really be drinking out of his fucking mug <laughs> i mean how many friends died because of thanos like i mean he lost his whole fucking family for four years like he went insane and started murdering like the entire criminal underground because of fucking thanos <laughs> Yeah, but he's also not sweating the small stuff at this uh, point, you know? No, it's, he's it's very someone's much mug. sweating he's... the small stuff. We just watched <laughs> these, like, traumatic nightmares he's still having because of all this. What are you talking about? He can't do anything about people. No, man. It just, like, do people, are, like, are people so crass in the Marvel Universe <laughs> that, like, they're, like, having mugs that celebrate, like, mass genocide? Like, it just, I don't know, it feels off to me. Well, there was that whole group in Falcon Winter Soldier that, you know, believed that's a cult. in... That's like not like that's not like some kitsch like fucking mug that you buy at like you know, <laughs> like off Etsy. Like I could have I don't know. Yeah, you're right. I don't know who's making this merch. Yeah, right. And who's buying it? I would buy it though. Thanos was right. Alright. <laughs> you're a sick man. I'm the one that's stuck in traffic every day. I get it. You'd uh, be the first person to get dusted, Christian. <laughs> Kate was sent to meet up with the LARPing group we met in episode two, which still surprisingly has mostly law enforcement in it, in which Kate hopes to meet up with an officer able to get all the trick arrows back from the NYPD's evidence locker. Kate kind of makes a deal with an officer there, saying that she would do whatever she wanted as long as she got the arrows for them. Meanwhile, we see Clint threatening Kazi and warns him of that the path Maya is going down will not only anger the quote unquote big guy, but will get her killed in the end. Yeah, this is Clint like flexing his spy skills and trying to like manipulate things from behind the scenes and pull strings here. Um, this is like, you know, Nick Fury 101, it felt like. I did appreciate how he didn't give Kazi back the gun and just chucks uh -huh, it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
I do feel like kazi has been kind of underutilized at this point in the series. And I hope that, yes. you know, they give him something like meteor to do. Do you think they might be saving it for the Echo series? Like maybe something causes a bit of a twist in him throughout maybe. this one? Maybe. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to wait and see, right? Because at this point, he is just kind of a glorified henchman. Yeah. It just feels like a waste of a character. Clint would then return to Kate's aunt's place and, you know, find all these LARPers have invaded the space and are working on costumes with Kate. Kate in the scene with the return of the arrows promises to help them get new material for their costumes and maybe two more. So I don't know about you, but I, I definitely feel like they're getting like matching costumes by the end of this series, right? Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> now, do we think Clint is actually gonna get the mask, the full on comic book accurate mask? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I love that fucking mask. I hope so. Now, I guess there was some kind of like cut scene from the LARPers in an earlier episode, we think, where like there was a LARPer wearing a very like Hawkeye-esque mask. Hmm. So I don't know, maybe that was like just too much foreshadowing for them and that's why they cut that scene. Or maybe that cutscene's actually from like the last episode and maybe he does get the mask, but then he's like, no, fuck this. You know, this is ridiculous looking <laughs> and gives it to one of the LARPers. <laughs> but like, why wouldn't Clint wear a mask? Like, if he's worried about his identity and everything, you would think at this point he would want to wear a mask. Yeah, I hear you. He, he wants to stay inconspicuous. Why not wear a mask? But I, I don't know. Maybe he just figures everyone already knows who he is. So why bother? Yeah, but if he has I, a mask on, do they know who he is? I mean, do you think the bow and arrow is just too much of a giveaway? <laughs> Officer Wendy Conrad returns with the trick arrows in a special bag she wishes not to part with, but hands over anyway. Embroidered on this bag is the nickname Bombshell, which refers to her comic book name in which she is a bombs expert villain, which is kind of terrifying to think is working inside the NYPD right now, but who knows? So apparently also there's another LARPer in this group who has a name that could be connected to another like C-list Marvel villain from the comics. Uh, but I'll be completely honest, like Bombshell's name sounded familiar to me. But like, you know, once I saw like some of the sites pick it up, like I was looking into it and like, but I'll be completely honest, I have no recollection whatsoever of this character. So it's definitely a deep cut, which I mean, bravo. <laughs> but I just don't foresee this like turning into something. You know what mm. I mean? It just feels like kind of like an Easter egg for the sake of an Easter egg. Yeah, I think most of these, they're just putting them in for us, you know, nerds who have to like go through all this <laughs> at this point. Just to fuck with us? Is that what you're saying, Christian? Uh -huh. <laughs> just to fuck with me. At night, the duo track down the missing watch to an apartment complex and of course, bicker about the right approach of getting in. Kate brazenly tricks an old man into giving her access to the building and finds her way into the apartment. And as she enters, a bunch of flashing lights go off, but she quickly gucks them up with trick arrows. Upon searching the apartment, she finds not only the watch, but a list of Clint's family members to the surprise of Clint, who is staking out the area from the rooftop across the way. Clint also then realizes what the flashes in the apartment were and tells Kate that she's in Maya's apartment before suddenly getting attacked on his end. So I think this moment said a lot about Kate as a person. Um, you know, even though she's working with like her hero, someone that she's worshipped for years since she was a child, like she still doesn't take the time to really like listen. And she's so like brash that she just rushes into like any given situation. Like, I don't know if it's more about Kate trying to impress Clint or just, you know, kind of a personality like tick of hers where she mm -hmm. just has this like impulse control. I mean, she is in her early 20s, so. 
that just comes with like the territory. But you would think that she'd be a little more hesitant and like, you know, kind of like hanging on every one of like, you know, Clint's words. But that's not the case at all with her. I guess there's also that need to like prove herself in front of her hero. Yeah. You know, like show, you know, that she's capable, just as capable if possible. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's interesting that she goes to that spectrum, you know, side of the spectrum instead mm -hmm. of like, you know, being more hesitant and more like, you know, waiting for, you know, his orders, which is actually very true to who she is, you know, in the comics. They've just done a really great job of like really like capturing her personality from page to screen. So yeah, the fact that they have a notebook with a list of, you know, Clint's family in it, I mean, it just really tells you that this is some serious fucking shit. And I'm curious just to see like how Clint's going to react to all this. I mean, he's too distracted, you know, right after this moment, you know, with the, the battle that ensues. But like next episode and everything like that, I want to see like just how he's going to handle knowing that, you know, his secrets out there and that, you know, his family's safety is at risk now. Does it bring out a little bit more of that Ronin? In him? Exactly. Are we going to see a darker side of Clint now? Because we know he can't handle losing his family again, especially because of his own doing. I mean, this is really like the sins of his past, like coming back to haunt him. Kay herself then starts getting attacked by Maya in the apartment with Clint over the radio fighting someone else. Both Kate and Clint, confused by who's fighting Clint, attempt to regroup as Clint gets an arrow with a rope fired off so that Kate can zipline across to his roof as he continues to fight the mystery assailant. Goddamn, there's nothing more Marvel than a rooftop fight. Like, <laughs> bar none, that is so Marvel. I just, I loved every moment of this. Now with our four combatants all on the roof fighting it out, it all becomes crystal clear who the mystery assailant was all along as Natasha's sister Yelena uses her Black Widow skills to fight Maya and Hawkeye. So even though Marvel ruined this kind of reveal themselves with their last trailer before this episode, I still felt like it worked. Um, you could kind of see mm -hmm. like, you know, Hawkeye's like terror once he realized he was going up against a Black Widow in this fight. Um, you know, I just recently rewatched Black Widow and Florence Pugh is so fantastic in this role. I just can't wait to see what she brings to like the MCU as the new Black Widow. Yeah, she was my favorite part of that film, and I'm definitely excited to see where this goes, especially if it's like the formation of like a Dark Avengers or something like that. As we know, Valentina is creating some type of team and has influenced her to go after Hawkeye for some reason. So my guess is she's going to get closure with Clint, uh, you know, in this series, just because I can't foresee like her stopping her quest for vengeance until she does so. So and I, I just don't feel like that's going to be the character's arc in the long run. I mean, unless they are planning on like multiple, you know, seasons of Hawkeye, which they could be. But it just feels like that character would be kind of like stuck treading water otherwise. You know, if there's only two episodes left and I'm wondering, you know, are they going to be able to do something satisfying with this new character being thrown in at the last possible moment? I mean, it's not the end per se, mm. but you know, there's a lot going on at this point. No, that is true. Um, I've got to give them credit though. Like they've handled like the pacing storytelling wise really well, because I mean, these episodes feel so like brisk and they're doing like a lot of like legwork in such a short period of time. Um, so it would be unfortunate if that storyline feels like it's kind of like put on the back burner and doesn't really get a chance to breathe. So maybe it will continue somewhere else, you know, or 
you know, in a season two. Did you catch the hero pose? Yes. <laughs> I caught the little hero pose. I thought pose. that was a really nice touch. Uh-huh. The entire fight scene in general is well choreographed, and, you know, we get a lot of special moments even going forward. All this conflict puts Clint in a tough spot, as not only is he fighting multiple trained fighters, but also is worried about Kate's safety, which gives us a heartbreakingly similar scene as Clint at one point has to save a falling Kate in a similar fashion to how Natasha went down in Endgame. Yeah, for a moment I thought Clint went full Ronin again and was just like, you know, ruthlessly <laughs> cutting the cord on Kate because she cost him the battle or something. Mm -hmm. uh, but I thought this was a really nice touch because Clint's got to be suffering from PTSD at this point. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, he's going to definitely be triggered. Um, you know, and it just, it, it makes sense for him to make the choice of trying to get Kate out of there as soon as possible. But he's got to realize that nothing is going to stop her because she's just so fucking determined. In the end, both Maya and Yelena run off, but it all proves to be too much for Clint as he calls off his partnership with Kate now that a Black Widow assassin has been added to the mix, and our episode would then come to a close. But like you said, I, I mean, you know, as soon as he gave her the phone number, Kate immediately started calling. I imagine the moment he walks off that rooftop, she'll just be at back at the apartment with him. You know, she's just going to keep chasing him. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> But it should be interesting next episode, like if we do, you know, like we're speculating, see a darker side of Clint, how's Kate going to react to that? Especially since so much of her life is inspired by this like hero worship, you know, putting him on a pedestal after, you know, he saved her life so many years ago. I've also been noticing that during like all the previously the past two episodes, um, they've been making sure to remind us that you know, she's missing an appointment with this co the cop that she had originally gotten a phone call right. from. And I'm wondering how much that's going to play into the finale at this point, because I feel like she's either going to be arrested or something. No, you're absolutely right. That was on their list of things to do in the apartment <laughs> when she was writing out on uh, her aunt's picture frame, mm -hmm. uh, you know, clear her name with the cops. So that's absolutely going to come into play somehow. You know, overall, I did really enjoy this episode. Uh, you know, I, as we've been saying, I've been enjoying the pacing of this com as compared to some of the previous series we've gotten in the Disney Plus stuff. But uh, I think the only thing I had a gripe with was I just didn't feel the anger or emotion come from Yelena during this fight that much. You know, it, it felt like she ran away too easily compared to like what we know that she's there for to get revenge. No, I can see that. I think that moment is yet to come, though. Like once Clint finds out why, you know, she's coming after him and that story is told between the two, I think that's when we're going to get like the bigger moments, you know, because I feel like this whole introduction was kind of muddied by the fact that, you know, she's wearing a mask. There's like, you know, two other people involved in the fight. So it was just kind of like a brief introduction where I feel like, you know, once they're like one on one and he gets the full story, that's when we're going to see that rage and passion, you know, coming from her. I could definitely see this next episode being an opportunity to have a lot of more of those one on one confrontations for Hawkeye in general, just because, you know, he'll be away from Kate and maybe he'll see a necessity to have her around by the end oh, of the episode. I, yeah, 100 percent. And then they'll, of course, team up again in the finale of the series. So which is you know, only an episode away, really. So now the big rumor on the interweb mm -hmm. is that in episode five is when shit really hits the fan and like it's going to basically set the Internet on fire. 
Um, okay. <laughs> a lot of people are speculating that means that Kingpin is probably showing up in this episode. Do you think that's going to be the case? I, I'm not sure if if he does show up again. I only expect like maybe a few steps into a scene. I'm not expecting like even a line at this point. Just just the presence alone. So <laughs> Christian's been hurt in the past by these Disney Plus shows. If you can't tell. <laughs> We did get like a full episode with Kang, right? Yes. So, I mean, they could surprise us, but I'm also kind of tempering my expectations. Um, and honestly, I would be fine with that. Like if we just mm -hmm. get like a brief cameo from Kingpin, um, you know, leave some meat on the bone. Like I'm also fine with getting a, a whole episode about Kingpin too. Don't get me wrong. But I'm wondering if this story doesn't end back at Clint's house. You know, does Echo make it all the way to like their farm and she's like literally mm. going after the family and like that's where the final battle takes place. And maybe that's where Echo, you know, finally sees the light and the error of her ways. Perhaps I think it would also be interesting if Kingpin's at that house and the well, chase that, ends up finding out that, that he's would be there. Terrifying. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Kingpin gets his hands dirty, though, like that. He's, you know, he's not that kind of villain. I guess. That's why he has henchmen like Bullseye. <laughs> or Echo. But again, there's only two episodes left, so there's not much room to speculate. We'll find out soon. That's right. Tune in next week to find out how wrong or right we were. But all right, Damon, it's now time for the best of horror month. Welcome to the best of ANS horror month. Now loading up countdowns across some of the most terrifying subgenres in horror. First up, slashes. Slasher films are arguably the most popular subgenre of horror. I mean, growing up an 80s kid and in the heyday of the slasher boom, their popularity had no bounds. So much so that many of these characters became instantly iconic and like are now recognizable as classic movie monsters like Dracula and Frankenstein. So what's the real reason behind these films' popularity? I think for me, the slasher genre taps into something primal about our fears. I mean, as a premise, it doesn't really get more simplistic. Survive the night while being stalked by a knife-wielding psycho. I mean, survival is the name of the game, and these films lend themselves to, like, escapism. They give us the therapeutic outlet to, like, laugh at our fears, and the permission to laugh in the face of death. I mean, where else are you going to have that opportunity? And while, like, effects and, you know, the super-powered boogeymen are definitely part of the allure, really, when done right, there is this strong underlying message of overcoming no matter what nightmares life throws at you. I mean, you can't get more cathartic than that, can you? But anyway, I digress. So before we get into our honorable mentions, there are rules to this countdown. In the name of variety, we are limiting the top 10 to one film per franchise. This has definitely made it more challenging for us, but we didn't want the top 10 to be overtaken by the rock stars of the subgenre like Freddy, Jason, and Michael. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, they're definitely well represented on this list, but now we get to sing some of the other film's praises also. So, honorable mentions, um, Psycho, Peeping Tom, and Deep Red. I mean, all films that really planted the seeds for this genre. Um, and undeniable influences. Also, I mean, cult classics like Burning, uh, Madman, Alice Sweet Alice, all deserve some love. And let's not forget 
the ridiculously fun films like Pieces, Silent Night, Deadly Night, and Hatchet. So maybe I just cheated and gave you a peek at what this list would look like if it was a top 20, but hey, it's our show. Um, without further ado, let's get into our top 10 favorite slasher films of all time. Number 10. 1988's Child's Play. At the start of our list is the iconic debut of the killer doll named Chucky in Child's Play. Director Tom Holland, that's not of Spider-Man fame, brought horror to audiences with a murderous doll attacking an innocent child with fantastic animatronics and the great voice work of Brad Dorff. Child's Play is not one to be forgotten. It's an entirely fun thriller that still holds up today. Number 9 scream he said everybody dies but us everybody dies but us we gonna carry on and plan the sequel because let's face it baby these days you gotta have a sequel ah! Ah! Sick fucks. you've seen one too many movies now sid don't you blame the movies movies don't create psychos movies make psychos more creative stop it billy would you all right i can't take anymore I'm feeling woozy here. Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson breathed new life into the horror genre and revitalized slasher films for a new generation. This smart meta take celebrates horror fandom and influenced films for years to come. It's one of the many highlights of Craven's storied career and is one of the reasons his legacy might never be matched. I mean, all hell goes face. I said it. Number eight, Maniac. Being very careless, blood in your hair. What will people say? What will we do? You want to look pretty, don't you? Maniac is the kind of film that you feel like you need to take a shower after watching. I mean, truly transgressive. It's disturbing because it kind of puts you in the shoes of the killer. Joe Spinell gives an unforgettable performance in this pseudo-character study of a psychopath scalping his victims and stapling his trophies on mannequins. I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> the film itself is filled with some intense sequences that are well-crafted and, of course, enhanced by the special effects of Tom Savini. Incredibly controversial at the time, Maniac has gone on to become a cult classic, and deservably so. Number 7. My Bloody Valentine That night at the dance, I found the boxes, blood dripping out the sides. Inside was a note, a warning from Harry, never to hold a Valentine's dance ever again. And every February 14th, Harry comes back to town, his pickaxe stained with blood, waiting in the shadows of the Henniger mine, just for someone to kill, should they not heed his warning. For me, My Bloody Valentine is the quintessential 80s slasher film. It has all the elements that I love, a strong backstory and a great look for the killer, creative kills, a likable cast, and a little bit of mystery. Also, the coal mine setting gives the film this unique aesthetic that we've never really seen before, and I think it really helps it to stand out. 
Um, it's a shame that we didn't get a sequel, but the remake wasn't half bad. Um, this coming Valentine's Day, do yourself a favor and check it out, but make sure you do it right and pick up the Scream Factory version of it. I mean, because it restores all the glory of the original kills. Number 6. Candyman Be my victim. I am the writing on the wall, the whisper in the classroom. Without these things, I am nothing. So now I must shed innocent blood. Come with me. A true standout among horror films in general is the tale of Candyman. Virginia Madsen and Tony Todd bring life to this horrifying urban legend. This slasher film takes a deeper look into society as Helen Lyle investigates Candyman and the cruel reality of what birthed this monster into being. Clive Barker and Bernard Rose put on a disturbing film chock full of unforgettably disturbing imagery, but it's Tony Todd's voice and performance that will leave you feeling haunted and truly fearing the name Candyman. An absolute must-watch for any who haven't experienced it yet. Number 5. 1974 Black Christmas Christmas is an unsung horror classic that even though over the last decade or so it's been finally getting some attention for its importance to the subgenre, I still don't think it gets enough credit for just how influential of a film it really is. I mean, in my estimation, it belongs in the same breath of like films like Psycho and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I mean, when you're talking about its importance to the horror genre. Bob Clark, I mean, who also directed another Christmas film on the complete opposite side of the spectrum, um, The Fantastic A Christmas Story, crafted a twisted, eerie masterpiece that uses the juxtaposition of Christmas to truly unnerve his audiences. I mean, any horror fan worth their salt will recognize after viewing this film just how pioneering it really is from the you know pov use to the closing montage of the different murder scenes to like the use of the holiday backdrop it's all there i mean its influence on halloween the film is undeniable and carpenter himself has said as much uh, as Christmas break begins, a killer hides in the attic of a sorority house, calling and tormenting these girls while picking them off one by one. I mean, one thing that I love about this film is we never truly know who the killer is. This adds a sense of tension throughout the film as Clark uses our knowledge that the killer is in the house against us. I mean, through the use of these obscene manic phone calls that really get underneath your skin. I mean, sincerely, these phone calls are fucked up from Billy or Agnes. I mean, I mean, you never know the killer's name. 
but I mean, they just do a fabulous job of painting how sick and perverse this monster must be. Um, Clark also takes the time to develop these characters, making them feel real. This is done by giving them individual backstories that, you know, with great performances by actresses like Margot Kidder and Olivia Hussey, really take the film up a notch. The fact that you're drawn in by these characters, I mean, really puts you on the edge of your seat when they're in peril. Also, the kills in this movie are really well shot. They don't waste them at all. I mean, using their imagery to haunt the movie was a brilliant choice by Clark. He really adds this like cloud of dread that hangs over the film. The sound design is simple and effective. I mean, a few well-placed like piano keys here and there and some somber Christmas carols. I mean, the score isn't telegraphing the horror, but enhancing it. Also, Clark does a great job using silence to build up suspense. I mean, something that I wish other filmmakers would do nowadays. Um, there's no better example of this than the end of the film, when everything has died down and the police have packed up and left. Hussey is alone in the quiet, and then all of a sudden, the phone rings. I mean, <laughs> and we know the nightmare probably isn't over because Billy or fucking Agnes is on the other end. If that doesn't give you chills, nothing will. So, I mean, if you have not seen this film, do yourself a favor and absolutely check this out. Number 4. 1974, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths, in particular Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young, but had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. One of the most unsettling films in the slasher genre by far has got to be Texas Chainsaw Massacre. With a low budget and grueling filming conditions, Tobe Hooper directed a film where you could feel the tension in every frame. That use of a 16mm film gave it this raw, unmistakably gritty look that gave some audiences a sense of watching something that was really happening. While the franchise has a legacy of gore, the first film might actually like surprise you with how little there actually was. Um, the real terror came from how the home and family were shot. You get the sense that they're really in a human slaughterhouse. And because of that, not only does it make the film stand out, but it allows it to hold up as a truly different kind of scare every Halloween season. Number 3. Friday the 13th Part 4. The Final Chapter. Bottle. Ted. Hey. Ted. Hey, Ted, where the hell's 
This was an incredibly difficult decision. I mean, since we're only allowing one film per franchise on this countdown, the question becomes, which Friday the 13th is the best overall? While Jason has had some weak entries, it has also had some absolute classics, and you can make the case that it might be the strongest franchise overall. For me, what it boiled down to was if I was tasked with introducing someone to the series, I mean, what film would I start with? And my answer had to be the final chapter. The final chapter has it all, and while part six comes in a close second, it's the final chapter that just feels like the pinnacle of the franchise. For me, it all really starts with the characters. What's different about this film compared to the others, um, the characters aren't just cannon fodder. They actually take the time to give them personalities, to make you care about them to a certain extent. I mean, from Jimmy, played by Crispin Glover, to you know his buddy Ted, to Corey fucking Feldman as Tommy Jarvis, Everyone has their own story arcs that allows you to genuinely get invested and care about their fates. They're not just there to pad the body count. Director Joseph Zito also like turns up the fear factor in this film. I mean, out of all the films in the franchise, the final chapter feels like a straight horror film. I mean, and Crispin Glover's dancing aside, it's a lot less campy than some of the other entries. And if you look at it, it's a pretty dark film. I mean, I think honestly, this is probably the last time I viewed Jason as scary. This was partially due, I think, to like the main protagonist being a child, something that hadn't really been seen in a Friday the 13th film yet. I know for me personally, when I first saw this movie, I was around Tommy's age, so whereas before I kind of felt safe watching these films because it seemed like, you know, Jason only stalked teenagers, now all bets were off. It also helped that Tommy himself was incredibly relatable. I mean, being a huge horror fan himself. So, but before we move on, let's talk about Ted White for a second. I mean, he's an awesome fucking Jason and really doesn't get his just dues. He's incredibly menacing and vicious in this film and adds this great physicality to the character. He got to execute some of the best kills in the franchise. I mean, all from the mind of the godfather of gore himself, Tom Savini, who's returning to the franchise at this point. I mean, the effects really put this film on the next level. The hacksaw head twist still holds up today, goddammit. <laughs> so you add all these things up and you have a tremendous slasher film that stands the test of time and is one of the main reasons why Friday the 13th is still part of pop culture today. Number two, Nightmare on Elm Street. Just meet me at my porch at midnight. Oh, and meanwhile. Meanwhile? Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. Freddy Krueger is a character that personifies the slasher genre, making it even harder to shut your eyes at night. Nightmare on Elm Street started Wes Craven's horrifying franchise with a killer that gets you when you're most vulnerable. While Robert England's Freddy is a bona fide horror icon, in my personal opinion, he was never scarier than he was in the first film. And I believe that's why it tends to stand out the most for me. There was more of a sense of pure evil behind his maniacal ways, and you could feel that evil getting stronger with every kill. On top of the terrifying Kruger, we were also introduced to one of horror's best heroes in Nancy, played by Heather Loggenkamp, who was far from your ordinary final girl. 
Um, she's a badass that takes on this nightmare head first. This combination of incredibly memorable performances to nightmare inducing kills such as Tina, you know, being ripped open and then flying through the air begging for her fucking life or Glenn turning into a reverse blood fountain makes this easily a fan favorite and deserving of being one of your Halloween go tos. And now the number one pick for best slasher film 1978 Halloween. Excuse me, Lori. Oh, Mr. Brackett, I'm sorry, Mr. Brackett. Oh, I didn't mean to startle you. That's all right. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? So was there any doubt what number one was going to be on this list? I mean, Halloween is the Citizen Kane of slasher films. It's not only one of my favorite horror films of all time, but it's just one of my favorite films bar none. Michael Myers has really become like the Santa Claus of the holiday. And while yes, there has been other films that have influenced the subgenre, Halloween has defined it. I mean, what else can I say about Halloween that hasn't been said before? It's a cultural touchstone. For better or worse, it went on to trigger a tsunami of copycat films that shaped the horror genre for the next two decades. The unstoppable force of nature, Michael Myers, I mean, the personification of evil, returns home on Halloween night to stalk his unexpecting victims. So while subsequent slasher films relied on a high body count and gore to scare their audiences, Halloween is just the perfect mix of atmosphere and suspense. It's Carpenter's artistry as a storyteller that takes this simple story and makes it modern mythology. From the opening POV scenes, to the reveal of the young Michael, to the closing shot letting us know that the boogeyman is still out there, Carpenter never lets his audience off the hook. His fluid and innovative camera movements puts us in the middle of the film, making us feel like a disembodied spirit watching the story unfold. I mean, it's his masterful use of light and focus that heightens the tension as Michael hides in the shadows. And then there's the freaking score, <laughs> written and performed by Carpenter himself. It's just one of the most iconic pieces of music in cinema history and operates almost as like the voice of Michael himself. Also, there's the performances. Another undeniable voice in this film is that of Dr. Loomis, who acts as a narrator of the impending doom. Through his campfire-like monologues, he lets us know that we're dealing with something primal and an unadulterated evil. This, of course, runs in contrast to the young, innocent Laurie Strode. She has no idea that she's in for the fight of her life. I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis's performance gives us a rooting interest in the character and is the archetype for final girls to come. One of the most astonishing aspects of this film is that it's done on a shoestring budget of only $300,000. I mean, becoming one of the most successful independent films of all time, grossing over $46 million in its first run. This is no small feat in 1978 and really lets you know that Halloween isn't just another horror film. It transcended that and became something more, really hitting a nerve with audiences. Like Damon said about Lori being the archetype for Final Girl, I, I honestly feel like I can say Michael and Halloween as a whole is what most directors that take a stab at making a slasher really are inspired by. But unfortunately, not many can hold a torch to this because they miss those elements of real stalking and tension-fueled storytelling. 
Instead, effects often went out over building a great villain like Michael Myers. And in this first film, there isn't really all that much to the character outside of Loomis's description of his evil. The mask alone is, you know, a Captain Kirk mask from, <laughs> from fucking Star Trek. So, I mean, it just goes to show how well Carpenter put together his story and why Halloween sits at number one in our countdown. And if you haven't seen Halloween, I don't know, like, you know, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Pick up this movie, check it out, watch it on Halloween as you're list after you listen to this episode, of course, and enjoy. Up next, zombies. We love zombie films. I mean, we love everything about them, from the small personal stories to the grand dystopian masterpieces we've been getting lately. I know you're like me. We just can't get enough. I mean, so growing up as a Fangoria kid, I'm naturally a sucker for gore. I love watching the special effects artists work their magic and give us sights that just truly rock us to our core. But I mean, what's great about these films is they're they're not just effect movies alone. I mean, their pliable nature allows them to be everything from like gut busting comedies and political satire to, of course, like terrifying horror films. And sometimes they do all that at once. I mean, one of the most beautiful aspects of the genre is every generation for the past 50 some odd years has their own zombie film that just hits a nerve and resonates and acts almost as like a time capsule reflecting on who we are as a society at that very moment. And that's why like the rotting corpses that refuse to die in these films, zombie films will always endure and be relevant. Well, with that being said, let the countdown begin! Now rising from the grave, The Amazing Nerd shows top 10 zombie movies. Number 10, Night of the Creeps. Oh, I got good news and bad news, girls. The good news is your dates are here. What's the bad news? They're dead. You have never had a night like this. While it might not be your traditional zombie film, this underrated cult classic is well-deserving of our countdown. Fred Decker, who also wrote Monster Squad, and directed for that matter, I mean, does a fantastic job of blending genres here. And my God, Tom Atkins, what a fucking performance. There's no way we were going to leave this film off our list. If you haven't seen it, stop what you're doing. I mean, after this show and check it out. Number nine. Zombie. Father of my father always said, when the earth spit out the dead, they will come back to suck the blood from the living. Three words, zombie versus shark. Nuff said. <laughs> this unofficial sequel to George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, I mean, has functioned as a gateway for horror hounds for generations. Unrelenting, I mean, just chock full of super memorable scenes uh, that will haunt your nightmares for years to come. Number eight, Return of the Living Dead. I don't think a film could possibly be more 80s than Return of the Living Dead. I mean, this film is outrageous and just a gory good time. I mean, they introduce the whole gimmick of like zombies craving brains and the effects in this film are just insane. I mean, Tar Man, come on people, fucking Tar Man. 
<laughs> Sorry, I just love this film. Number 7. Train to Busan. This action-packed, heartbreaking zombie film from South Korea gives us a tale of a man learning to be a father in the middle of a zombie outbreak. I mean, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised to see this film move up our list for years to come, as it is one of the best zombie films we've got in over the past decade. Number 6. Day of the Dead So for years, Day of the Dead was Romero's red-headed stepchild when it came to his zombie trilogy. I mean, that was until Land of the Dead came out, of course. <laughs> but like, I don't know, the movie grew on me. And I just, I love its suffocating like atmosphere. Um, it, the outrageous, over-the-top, fun performances and the tremendous effects. I revisit this film a couple times a year and I think it deserves a lot more love. And now the top five films. Number five, Dead Alive. Devil is amongst us. Stay back, boy. This calls for divine intervention. I kick ass for the Lord. All right, so bar none, my favorite Peter Jackson film. Yeah, I said it. I mean, <laughs> the first time I saw Dead Alive, I mean, it was a horror movie experience like none other. I mean, I remember afterwards my sides literally being sore from laughter. I mean, the film has as many laughs as, like, buckets of blood. And trust me, that's saying a lot. Um... It's all because Dead Alive is the perfect marriage between slapstick comedy and gory goodness. Our protagonist, Lionel, falls in love and is forced to have to get from underneath his mother's thumb and finally take a stand for himself. I mean, Jackson uses the zombies in this film as the physical manifestation of Lionel's repression at the hands of his vile, vile mother. I mean, the film crescendos into one of the most balls-to-the-wall, goriest scenes ever captured on film. And yet, somehow, that all pales in comparison to the utter disgust of watching the dreaded pudding scene. All this and more is why Dead Alive is number five on our list and a must-watch for fans of horror. Number four. 28 days later. How do you make a classic horror monster scarier than it already was? You take away one of its biggest crutches and have that son of a bitch run you down with horrifying intent. 
28 Days Later is credited as the birth of the modern zombie flick, as fast viral zombies change the game. And while most remember it for having zombies go 0 to 60, the, the film is also an extremely simplistic marvel. With a budget of 8 million, Boyle and company used every trick in the book to make a massive city look realistically desolate. Even with lower grade cameras and budgeted effects, you can see the love put into this horror film by crew and cast. With a story that throws you right into the action and always punches you hard and fast whenever you feel the story slowing. This film just has such a memorable intensity as you'll find yourself horrified by the possibilities of even accidentally being infected and turned into a ravenous monster. Though like the main character finds out, sometimes you gotta be a monster to live among them. It is definitely a top 5 zombie flick and worth checking out if you haven't. Number 3. Shaun of the Dead Go to Mum's, kill Phil, sorry, grab Liz, go to the Winchester, have a nice cold pint, and wait for all this to blow over. How's that for a slice of fried gold? Yeah, boy! Is it blasphemy to have a parody in your top five zombie flicks? Not when they're this fucking good. Shaun of the Dead is one of the most charmingly humorful takes on the zombie genre. A film about relationships, friendships, and maturity set at the start of an apocalypse. Simon Pegg and Nick Frost are a comedic dream team backed by Edgar Wright's distinct film style. You can't help but root Sean on as he attempts to save his parents, friends, and ex by going to the one place he knows well his favorite pub, The Winchester. And while you can't mistake this film to have been done by anyone other than Edgar Wright, there's definitely a lot of love for the genre as a whole in this film. This movie is chock full of classic scenes and you know unforgettable moments that you know, you'll leave the movie and immediately start quoting to your friends. It is one of the best handled spoofs of any genre and something I can come back to all year long, horror month or not. And that's exactly why it ranks so high on our list. Number two, Night of the Living Dead. Well, you used to really be scared here. Johnny. You're still afraid. Stop it now, I mean it. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it, you're ignorant. They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it, you're acting like a child. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. He'll hear you. Here he comes now. I'm getting out of here. Johnny. Groundbreaking. I mean, it all started here, right? I, I, you know, taking zombie films away from their original voodoo origins. I mean, George Romero redefines what the subgenre is, giving us the template for modern day zombies. And I mean, this still holds and is used over 50 years later. It's very simple. Reanimated corpses driven by the need to feast on human flesh. Countless films, comics, books, video games, TV shows have their roots in this film. But what made Romero's Night of Living Dead different from your standard horror affair is it takes this nightmare scenario and he uses it to explore the ills of society, proving horror could be more than just cheap scares, that it could actually have a message. I mean, don't get me wrong, the film itself is chilling, but the haunting 
claustrophobic atmosphere that Romero builds is only part of the equation. I mean, it's thick with themes like racism, trust, and mob mentality. You know, and the true horror of the film really comes from Romero's ability to show how fragile our civilization is. And I just watched this again last night, and man, that ending is depressingly more relevant now than ever. And now the number one zombie movie, Dawn of the Dead. What the hell are they? They're us, that's all. There's no more room in hell. What? Something my granddaddy used to tell us. You know Makumbo? Voodoo. Granddad was a priest in Trinidad. He used to tell us, when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk there. So at an extremely young age, sometime in the 80s, I saw Dawn of the Dead for the first time. Um, and I still remember physically feeling sick to my stomach. I mean, I'm not even sure if I made it through the whole film. But what was so great about it was I couldn't wait to revisit it. And every single time that I did, the older I got, the more layers I was able to pull back and discover something new Romero was trying to say. Dawn of the Dead is Romero at the height of his filmmaking prowess. He takes the concepts that he developed in Night of Living Dead and he just levels it up. It's bigger, it's bolder, and it's in fucking color. <laughs> we get introduced to the special effects guru Tom Savini here as he uses this film as his blood-soaked canvas of carnage, making the unimaginable horrors real. I mean, and truly changing the horror game forever. Romero this time, he amps up the social commentary as he takes aim at consumerism, using the subgenre to really show us that even in death, we're slaves to status and the almighty dollar. This film is not only a watershed moment for horror, but for cinema. Up next, Ghosts. So Damon, why don't you let them know why we chose Ghosts for our countdown this week? So originally this countdown's theme was going to be paranormal films, but since that just felt like too broad of a term and would put into play, you know, other types of movies like Demons, which totally deserves their own, like, countdown, we decided to just focus on ghost films for this week. So why is the ghost subgenre so special? Um, I think it's really because it delves into that primal fear of the unknown. Um, it explores themes such as grief and loss, spirituality and the afterlife. Themes that are just universal and super relatable. Um, you know, it also liberates filmmakers from like everyday conventional storytelling and allows them to use our imaginations against us. I think everyone's had a moment where they felt like they're being haunted by something. Um, and that's one of the main reasons it's attracted so many talented directors throughout the years. So anyway, putting together this list was almost impossible, um, especially whittling it down to just 10 films, especially since there have been so many great ones throughout the history of film. Uh, so 
you know, we definitely felt like we had to do honorable mentions this countdown. Uh, if this was a top 15 countdown, these movies would definitely make the cut. Um, the Orphanage, Insidious, The Others, and The Legend of Hell House. And last but not least, Ghostbusters. Um, this countdown is more horror-focused, so that's really the only reason why Ghostbusters didn't make it, uh, because Ghostbusters is one of our favorite films of all time, uh, and if we ever did, like, a horror countdown, it would definitely make it high on that list, so, but anyway, I digress, let's go ahead and get into our countdown. Number 10 of the best ghost films. The Haunting. The Haunting is an undeniable classic. It, I mean, it literally wrote the blueprint on how to make these ghost films work. It operates solely on the theater of the mind, building suspense through things like sound and performance. I mean, you don't see much in this fucking film, but it doesn't make it any less effective. I mean, any horror fan worth their salt can watch this film and literally track its influences across the decades since it was made. Number 9. Ring. あなたはもう死んだの。Ringu or Ring is a late 90s classic that really helped kick off the J-horror boom, and to this day is probably one of the most successful of them. Um, and that's because this movie is terrifying. It unsettles and unnerves the viewer without using gratuitous jump scares. Utilizing subtlety and sound design techniques that allows this film to show you, but not tell you what to be afraid of at every single moment. Its slow burn style and ultimately tragic story creeps up behind you to create memorable lasting scares that leave you truly haunted. To this day, the original ring scares even me. Number 8. Poltergeist. The amount of nightmare fuel this film gave me as a young child in the 80s is just ridiculous. I mean, from the creepy stuffed clown and the tree outside the window and the fucking TV, it was just enough to ruin my life for the entire year. Um, Poltergeist took ghost stories out of gothic castles and giant mansions and really brought the horror to the suburbs. Uh, even though legendary Toby Hooper's name is attached as director, rumor has it that Spielberg was behind the camera more so than not. And, I mean, it really does make sense because his fingerprints are all over this film. I mean, to me, Poltergeist is as much of a, you know, Spielberg film as E.T. And that's probably why we love it so much. Number 7. The Conjuring. Look what she made. Look what you made me do! After years of watching poorly done horror movies throughout the 2000s, or films that were all about gore, 
The Conjuring took me by surprise. In just under two hours, James Wan reinvigorated my love of horror and gave me hope for the future of the genre, because that's just how good of a film this was. How I would describe it is that Wan and company just captured an old school style ghost flick and modernized it. It has a slow build up at first, but it's never boring. The cast owns their roles and makes the story of the Warrens investigations great for anyone that is into the paranormal. It kicked off a franchise that I still hold in high regards and I still argue that is one of the best horror flicks to come out in the 2010s. Number 6. The Sixth Sense Grandma comes to visit me sometimes. Paul, that's very wrong. Grandma's gone, you know that. I know. She wanted me to tell you. Paul, please She stop. wanted me to tell you she saw you dance. She said, when you were little, you and her had a fight. Right before your dance recital. You thought she didn't come to see you dance. She did. So The Sixth Sense is a victim of time. Unfortunately, throughout the years since it's been released, it's been kind of reduced to its twist ending. And if you ask me, that's just unforgivable. Because the film is just so much more. Great performances, bone-chilling scenes, and well-orchestrated scares. I mean, M. Night crafted a great film, filled with beauty, heartbreak, and fucking horror. I mean, it's the kind of film that stays with you for days after viewing it. I think it just gets unfairly blamed because of the amount of bad copycat films that preceded it throughout the rest of the decade. Um, but I plead with you, get over the memes and, you know, the bad quotes in the twist ending and just re-watch it or watch it for the first time for that matter. I mean, as ridiculous as it sounds, The Sixth Sense, a movie that was nominated for multiple Academy Awards, is truly underrated. And now the top five ghost films. Number five, The Changeling. What is in this house? Speak to John. John is with us. How did you die? Did you die in this house? Why do you remain in this house, Joseph? How did you die? Joseph, did you die in this house? The Changeling is a bit of an overlooked classic. I mean, dark, brooding, and incredibly creepy. Many films have been inspired by this unsung haunted house story. Um, in this film, we're introduced to John Russell, played by George C. Scott. And an actually kind of subdued performance for him. Um, he's a man consumed by his own grief after losing his wife and daughter to a horrible accident in the beginning of the movie. Uh, he moves to Seattle to a giant historical mansion that just seems to echo his loneliness. 
Uh, and of course, we soon discover he's not alone. The Changeling is a film that is just thick with ambiance. Uh, the mansion is a character onto itself. Even though the film is supposed to take place in like the current day that it was released, 1980, the aesthetics almost feels gothic and timeless. The director, Peter Medic, he uses this to kind of build a sense of melancholy for Russell, making him feel small, but strangely not alone. Uh, this is due to just creative like angles and shot selection to make it feel like he's being watched at times. The film is the definition of a slow burn. Um, it's not a buffet of jump scares. The scares are really like subtle and expertly built through visuals and the use of sound. The score is composed by Rick Wilkins, and it's just so moody and sad, but classic. Um, you know, brilliantly, they have John Russell in the film be a composer himself. So this allows him to, like, speak through his, like, piano playing at times. And it's just a beautiful use of diegetic music. Uh, this less is more approach makes it feel like a gut punch when something actually does start to happen. I mean, it will have you like jumping at the sight of a ball bouncing or like the sight of the most fucking terrifying wheelchair I've ever seen. Um, there's this like seance scene in this movie that has always just like stuck with me. I remember being younger and watching it and I mean for the first time and literally changing the channel like when the medium starts to communicate with a ghost by writing on a notepad. Um, the sound of the scribbling on the paper was just enough to build up this suspense so much that it was just unbearable for me to handle. Um, these like little nuances that may come across as almost tropey nowadays was so like expertly used, you know, in this film that it probably established the tropes in the first place. Anyway, these are just some of the reasons I always revisit this film around this time of year. I mean, if you enjoy the haunted house genre, definitely visit The Changeling and try to enjoy your stay. Number 4. The Amityville Horror Amityville Horror turned a home into a horror icon, as imagery of the windows alone can get you in the Halloween spirit. The film itself unfolds in horrifying fashion as you watch a loving father struggle but ultimately attempt to turn on his family. What makes this such a standout film is its performances as you watch James Brolin fall into the darkness of this cursed home. George Lutzk as a character steals the show in my opinion. Whenever I think back to this film, I recall the moments of pain as he feels like he's being mentally ripped apart. The entire Lutz family puts forward a great showing as director Rosenberg and crew go a little crazy with special effects to make this house feel truly haunted. Everything from the wife to the terrifying daughter and her best friend leave you with memorable moments that add to the legacy of the home. I mean, I don't know, you know, like, I mean, don't get me wrong, I have no idea why the fuck they would stay in that house for as long as I did, but it's sure made for great cinema and is now a Halloween season must-watch. Number 3. The Devil's Backbone Santi, habla conmigo. 
No quiero que nadie se muera. Santi, por favor. Number three, The Devil's Backbone. The Devil's Backbone is one of Guillermo del Toro's most poignant pieces of work. A beautiful atmospheric ghost story centered around the tail end of the Spanish Civil War. This wonderful crafted allegory is about the unforgiving cycle of war in all of its horrors. Um, we're introduced in this film to a young boy named Carlos who's brought to an orphanage after his father dies. He's soon forced to unravel a mystery surrounding the ghost of a young boy that haunts its grounds. The film has this eerie, dreamlike quality that's just enhanced artfully by the cinematography. It, like, it almost gives off this glow to all of its surroundings. But unlike Del Toro's other film based on the Spanish Civil War, Pan's Labyrinth, there is no fantasy element to this film. I mean, it deals with the cold bleakness of reality. And this holds true with Del Toro's design for Santi, the ghost of the child. Uh, the imagery forces you to come face to face with the terrifying reality of this child's death. And it's both unnerving and unforgettable. Um, because in the end, the true horror of the devil's backbone lies in the trauma and tragedy of war. And with this movie, Del Toro showing us, it's these chapters in our history book that will haunt us to the end of time. Number two, Juan, The Grudge. <laughs> All right, now I know I said Ringu was a terrifying film, and it is, but Juan is a beast of its own. A home in Tokyo that was the scene of the horrible murder of Keiko, her son, and even the family cat births a terrible curse, turning the family's spirits into vengeful monsters and ultimately consuming all who enter. While at times the performances, yeah, they, they can be shaky, uh, the film's true selling point is the way it handles imagery. Similar to Ring, things aren't just thrown into your face left and right. There isn't going to be a jump scare every five minutes. There is an immense tension and buildup to each scare. And the scares can either be subtle or bone-chillingly hard to look at. And the way the film is structured gives you, the viewer, that feeling of being consumed by the curse. As the mystery behind the family's grisly deaths unfolds. While the story was made more linear and simplified for American audiences, you can still see a lot of the director's intense use of imagery in those releases as well. It's what makes um, this series truly horrific and the characters truly terrifying. Um, it sticks with me and makes it an easy choice for my top five ghost films. Number one on the best ghost films countdown, The Shining. I saw your picture in the newspapers. You, uh, chopped your wife and daughter up into little bits. And, uh, then you blew your brains out. That's strange, sir. I don't have any recollection of that at all. 
Grady. You were the caretaker here. I'm sorry to differ with you, sir. But you are the caretaker. You've always been the caretaker. While we struggled with the placement of many of the films on much of this countdown, um, from the beginning there was no doubt what film would make the number one slot, and that had to be The Shining. Um, the film is directed by Stanley Kubrick and based on the novel from the master of horror himself, Stephen King. Uh, this is not only my favorite ghost story, but it's one of my favorite films of all time. It dismisses much of the standard conventions that we talked about a lot throughout our countdown, um, you know, that make the subgenre so successful. There are no dark shadows for the ghost to hide in the Overlook Hotel. Kubrick instead has much of the horror take place in large, brightly lit rooms, so there's no mistaking what these characters are witnessing or experiencing. Um, to build up that sense of dread, he really relies on his camera and, and things like the score and these brilliant performances. Every frame of this film is painstakingly detailed by him, um, making it feel like a film that is taking place in almost like a painting. Uh, his pioneering use of the Steadicam allows us to feel like the young boy Danny traveling through the hallways of the Overlook and coming across some of the most disturbing visuals and spirits that have ever haunted film. But Kubrick's elegant craftsmanship aside, at the heart of this film, regardless of how he feels about Kubrick's interpretation, is King's story of a man's descent into madness. I mean, like I've said before, no one does insane like Jack Nicholson. I mean, his performance is truly iconic, but also deserving credit is Shelley Duvall. Her reactions to everything that's happening in the film really heighten the terror. And then there's Danny, played by the young Danny Lloyd. Tormented by his ESP abilities, I mean, he's really a harbinger of things to come and acts as a conduit to the evil living within the Overlook. But unfortunately, he's too young to do much about it. And when he finally does warn the family, Red Rum, it's, it's just too late. All these different elements make for one of the most obsessed over horror films of all time. There's been plenty of books and documentaries dissecting this film. And to think, this film was critically panned when it first was released. Kubrick even received a nomination for a Razzie for Worst Director. I mean, that tells you right there how much credence you should put into things like Rotten Tomato scores, because The Shining is a true masterpiece in every sense of the word. That is truly stunning to hear. While I knew it wasn't a hit when it came out, I didn't realize Kubrick actually got nominated for a fucking Razzie. Because like, like you said, I, I think this film is more than worthy of being number one in a sub-genre sub list. I look at this film as something that stands far above the genre of horror as a whole. Even as we get further and further away from its initial release, I believe it stands the test of time and deserves to be our number one for all the reasons you gave and more. Kubrick and Nicholson were a match made in heaven, and I can't recommend more that horror fans watch this film every chance that they get up next vampires this month begins with vampires damon tell them why 
Since Bram Stoker put pen to paper, there has been a character in horror that has been more celebrated and has inspired more works of literature and film than that of the vampire. From vicious and nasty to cool and seductive, there's sex and violence all wrapped up in one undead corpse. There are unbridled lust for life and the ultimate allegory for mortality and addiction. But at the end of the day, the real reason vampires resonate is because they're us, our dark reflections untethered from pesty morals. And that's why throughout the decades, there have been countless films that explore the children of the night. So without further ado, let's count down our favorite modern day vampire films. So just like last year, to Christian's dismay, there are just too many great modern day vampire films to be contained to our usual top five format. But in the name of compromise, we're gonna go ahead and go warp speed through 10 through six. So let's hit the gas, Christian. Number 10, 1998's Blade. Imagine a time there was a serious question whether or not Marvel Comics could translate into a great film. But then Blade came along, the first truly successful Marvel movie at the box office. And it just doesn't get enough credit. I mean, filled with fun action and a whole lot of style, Wesley Snipes is truly iconic as the Daywalker. Plus, two words, Blood Rave. Number 9, From Dusk Till Dawn. What starts off as a classic crime story takes one of the hardest left turns in cinema history and becomes a gonzo vampire bloodbath that only the likes of Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez could dream up. Number 8, Fright Night. Fright Night shows us what happens when a horror fan has a vampire move in right next door to his suburban home. What ensues is nothing but glorious 80s fun, and damn it, it still holds up today. And you know what? The remake's not half bad either. Number seven, first. This South Korean film directed by the amazing Park Chan-wook is an intelligent dark comedy that gives us a fresh take on the vampire subgenre. In the film, we witness what happens when a Catholic priest becomes a vampire and is now torn between bloodlust and his own faith. Number six, near dark. This gritty vampire western about a nomadic group of bloodsuckers is an underappreciated cult classic and has one of the late great Bill Paxton's best performances. And now for our top five vampire flicks. Number five, what we do in the shadows. When you get three vampires in a flat, obviously there's going to be a lot of tension. Viago was an 18th century dandy. A ghost cop. Vladislav is a bit of a pervert. This is my torture chamber. Deacon's like the young bad boy of the group. I'm supposed to pay rent, but I don't. Now, I know you weren't expecting a comedy film in the middle of our horror month countdown, but as Damon so eloquently stated up top, vampires are our dark reflections, and Taika Waititi's What We Do in the Shadows takes that statement even more literal as this mockumentary pokes fun at the flaws of being a vampire. Taika's take on vampires hilariously shows misfortunes of four time-displaced evil beings struggling to fit in with the changing times, while also trying to, you know, keep that alone lure of being a vampire. 
Uh, this twist on the usual sexy, powerful vampire grinds in the harsh realities of what it really means to be an undead being in the 20th century. The approach of humor in this just kind of ranges from like these very subtle jokes to completely outrageous moments with excellent comedic timing from not only Taika himself, since he actually stars in it, but his co-stars as well. Jesse Clements in this is fucking hilarious as Vlad and honestly has me laughing every single time. So as someone who does recommend this movie to every single person I meet, like I somehow find some weird way of bringing this up in conversation <laughs> i'm of course recommending this to all of our listeners as well number four bram stoker's dracula vampires do exist this one we fight this one we face can take on many forms he is both young and old he can appear as mist as vapor as the fog and he can vanish at will. Oh, my love. The power of his evil desire has no end. So Francis Ford Coppola's version of Dracula is a lavish affair, taking a more operatic and romantic approach to the original story. Just drippy with amazing art direction and an unforgettable score, Coppola really doubles down on production to give us the Dracula film we deserve. But with that being said, what really makes this film work is it's anchored by two brilliant performances by Gary Oldman and Anthony Hopkins. Also, Coppola tries to actually deepen the lore of the title character in a way not many have attempted before or since. But unfortunately, with that being said, he also casted Keanu Reeves to play Jonathan Harker. Reeves stands out like a sore thumb here, and an offense that I found almost unforgivable for years, and probably the only reason why this movie isn't ranked higher on our list. But damn it, regardless, it's still a fantastic movie. It's something I revisit at least a couple times a year, and it definitely belongs on our countdown. Number three, The Lost Boys. Notice anything? unusual about Santa Carla yet? No, it's a pretty cool place. If you're a Martian. Or a vampire. <laughs> Vampires, 80s rock and roll, and heavy synthesizers should honestly be all you need to know for why Joel Schumacher's The Lost Boys should be in your vampire binge this horror month season. This pure 80s classic brings horror to the beachside front of a California town, and while it may be more remembered as a nostalgic piece of the late 80s that brought you badass teenage vamps, I've always kind of found what they did with this kind of bright beachy setting to be a slightly unnerving place for a martyr capital of the world and of course home to a gang of vampires. Schumacher brought the rock and roll edge to his take on vampires and brought us great performances from the ever cool Kiefer Sutherland and the dynamic duo of Corey Feldman and Corey Haim. Honestly, if you haven't seen The Lost Boys yet, you're simply doing yourself a disservice. Pop in the VHS tape, pop yourself some popcorn, and enjoy right after you're done listening to this episode, of course. Number 2, 2008's Let the Right One In. Are you a vampire? A story about loneliness and acceptance, Let the Right One In is a dark tale about learning to survive in a cruel world. 
this breathtaking Swedish film shows how much the genre really has to offer. The unconventional friendship between our two main characters poetically displays the importance of unconditional love because their very survival depends on it. So while not completely awful, do yourself a favor and stay away from the American remake and watch the original, subtitles and all. This sad, twisted, eerie story filled with blood-soaked snowscapes will enchant any horror fan worth their salt. Number one, Salem's Law. They're breeding on one another. The vampires are creating vampires. The master wants you. It's a geometric progression. Two times two times four times eight. There's a dead man upstairs. Bill! Yeah, you know, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. Look at me. Ned Tebbett's body has disappeared from the morgue. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Bill! So I'm absolutely cheating here because Salem's Lot is technically a TV miniseries. I mean, it was edited in Europe for a cinematic release and on TV throughout the 80s, it was also presented that way. But I digress. I mean, it's our countdown and our rules. Salem's Lot absolutely traumatized me as a young child, but that's what happens when you get the legendary Toby Hooper adapting a Stephen King novel. I mean, from the vampire child knocking outside his friend's window to the Nosferatu-like Barlow, the film is just pure nightmare fuel. By far the scariest film on our countdown. It has all the classic Stephen King tropes that we've come accustomed to throughout the years. The main character is a writer who returns home to face a traumatic event that happened in his past, only to find the town is being infected by vampires. Both parts of vampire film and a classic haunted house movie, Salem's Lot has all the chills you want and then some, and it's still creepy as all hell. And that's why it's number one on our countdown. Up next, Witches. This time out, we're talking our favorite witch films. Damon, what makes witches so horrifying? So witch films in horror have a rich storied history. The witch is a character throughout the genre who deviates outside the confines of society's norms. Enticed by power, fearing no man or God, they feast on our paranoia, and when wrongfully or rightfully persecuted for their dark path, their thirst for vengeance is like none other. Throughout the history of cinema, they have served as a strong metaphor for womanhood and female empowerment. Liberated from a life of objectification and religious oppression, the films can act as a dark fantasy about breaking social constructs. But regardless of the many different messages the movies throughout the years have spoke, the one common ground is an atmosphere of dread that seeps from every frame, making the witch subgenre one of the scariest in horror. All right, so once again, just a reminder, these are our favorite witch films. If they're not yours, that's cool. If you want, you can go ahead and let us know some of your favorites. Uh, you can find us on social media at Amazing Nerd Show, and we're pretty much on all the normal platforms. Also, one other side note, something that weighed kind of heavy into our rankings are the film's merits as a witch film, meaning that if this was just a top horror film list, the rankings would probably be different. So without further delay, let's go ahead and get into it. Uh, once again, uh, this was supposed to be a top five list, but it was just too difficult for us to just pick five films. Uh, so we're going to do top 10, but we're going to speed through 10 through 6.
Number 10. The Lords of Salem. One of Rob Zombie's strongest films, visually stunning with a unique creative story. This is Zombie stretching his wings as a director, something I just wish he would do more of. Number 9. Drag Me to Hell. An underappreciated Sam Raimi film that's filled with fun moments and just a hilarious morality tale about the importance of doing the right thing. Number 8. The Croft. The modernization of the witch film, told through the perspective of how hard it is to be a teenage girl in society, and just a real time capsule of 90s goodness. Number 7. 2018's Suspiria. Really the template on how a good remake should be done, they brought something fresh and new to the original concept aesthetically and story-wise, and it really pays off. Also the Black Sabbath scene at the end of the film is just one of my favorite moments in horror over the past decade. Number 6. The Conjuring I think over the years people forgot that like at the heart of The Conjuring is an evil spirit of a witch who's just fucking terrifying. I mean just the fact alone that she vomits her essence into someone's mouth to possess them was really enough to give me sleepless nights. And now the top 5 witch films. Number 5. The Blair Witch Project oh. I just want to apologize to Mike's mom and Josh's mom and my mom. I am so, so sorry because it is my fault because it was my project. The Blair Witch takes the old adage less is more to the extreme. Never in the history of cinema has twigs and sticks been so fucking scary. For better or worse, a true pioneer for not only bringing found footage filmmaking to the forefront of the genre, but for also masterfully utilizing the internet in its marketing campaign. The movie's website treated the film like a true documentary, and some walked in the theaters really believing that to be the case. But the film's success is more than just a website's clever deception. What it really hinges on is the Blair Witch's ability to tap into the root of fear. It's not really about what you see, instead it's about the theater of the mind. We follow a documentary crew who's seeking answers about the legend of the Blair Witch and experience their journey to terror firsthand. There's no special effects or score, just three kids and a camcorder. And that's why the film works. This is a minimalist approach to filmmaking that makes the film feel more authentic, more real. You become lost in the woods with the crew and the witch is every rustling leaf or breaking branch around you. Then throughout the movie, the suspense slowly tightens its grip on you until you're left gasping for air during the film's chaotic finale. And then you're left asking yourself, what the hell did I just witness? Number four, the witch. Oh God, my Lord, I now begin. Oh, help me and I'll leave my sin. For I repentant thou shall be. From evil I will turn to thee. None ever shall destroy my faith. For I repentant thou shall be. Oh God, my Lord, I now begin. Oh, help me and I'll leave my sin. For I repentant thou shall be. From evil I will turn to thee. I was a little late to the work of Robert Eggers, but after seeing The Lighthouse and hearing Damon's praises of Eggers' 2015 film, The Witch, I had to check it out for myself. This 1600s New England tale will bring out the paranoia in you as you watch a family rip itself apart. While the film is called The Witch and the horrors of this family experience are caused by a witch, it's mostly their own actions and choices that bring upon their demise. As when trust gets thrown out the window, the house 
itself begins to cave. Everything from the family's performances to the cold, clouded days of the New England location are utilized to slowly eat away at you and make you feel the tension the family is going through. The dread and suspense can reach unbearable levels as this film just gets darker and darker every minute, making this a truly haunting witch tale on our list of favorites. Number 3. Rosemary's Baby Paramount Pictures presents Mia Farrow in a William Castle production, Rosemary's Baby. Rosemary's Baby is a slow burn masterpiece of paranoia. Mia Farrow playing Rosemary knows something's wrong with her pregnancy and suspects everyone around her of malicious intent. And her fears are more than justified because her struggling actor husband has sold her womb to a coven of witches and warlocks to finally get his big break. Then in a horrific scene, the satanic cult literally summons the devil to rape Rosemary in the name of giving Satan a son. What we watch next is Rosemary's downward spiral as she desperately searches for the truth as her world crumbles around her. Beautifully shot with one of the most haunting scores in horror history, Polanski gives the film an almost dreamlike quality that makes you actually question what you're seeing. Is it all real or is it in Rosemary's head? We do end up getting our answer though, and one of the most chilling scenes in cinema history as Rosemary discovers the truth and she finds the coven celebrating the birth of her son, the Antichrist. And then in the final shot of the film, we see Rosemary cave into her motherly instincts and rock the baby for the first time. Number two, Hereditary. Mom? I don't like this. Dad, I don't like this. What's happening? He I just don't want to put any more stress on my family. Ari Aster, with the casting of Tony Coilette, gave me a horrifying experience that I may never forget and still haunts me to this day. Hereditary follows the Graham family after the loss of their sweet, sweet grandmother and follows this family of four down a depressingly tragic road that is unknowingly soaked in the works of a cult. And that's all I feel comfortable telling you about the story as the events need to be seen played out. The way Ari Aster filmed this movie is not only stunning, but painfully unnerving to watch, as every single shot was done with purpose. Not a single moment is wasted in this film's cinematography. Again, this is another film on our list where it's not just the supernatural element that makes it a horrifying experience, but it's the use of sound and visuals just, you know, just off enough to tickle the hairs on your neck. And a story with events driven by realistic reactions and performances from the family that create truly a gut-wrenching experience. This is one of those movies that even though I think it's amazing, I need to be convinced to watch it again. But you know, for anyone who hasn't seen it though, it, it's a must. You gotta watch it, you gotta check it out at least once. And then you can, you know, never watch it again if you want. But you have to see it at least once. Number 1. 1977 Suspiria It's useless to try and explain it to you. You wouldn't understand. It all seems so absurd. So fantastic. All I can do is get away from you soon as possible. How come I never noticed that before? Susie, if they don't leave, where do they go? 
Dario Argento's Suspiria is one of the most influential horror films of all time. This technicolor nightmare feels like a dark, twisted fairy tale come to life. An American ballerina travels to Germany to attend a highly regarded school of dance, only to find out that it's run by a coven of witches. What ensues is a string of grisly graphic murders that causes an unnerving dichotomy against the film's bright Disney film-like color palette. It's both gorgeous and brutal at the same time. Head witch Helena Marcos feels like she's whispering in your ear throughout the film in the form of the band Goblin's iconic score, a score that dared to break all the rules as it pulsates through every scene, elevating the terror to new heights. Argento shepherds us through his Wonderland of the Macabre with the aid of Doe-Eyed Susie, played by Jessica Harper, as we witness her fight tooth and nail to survive the coven's sinister plot. I mean, it's a true defining moment in horror. Suspiria is Argento's wickedly bizarre triumph and a film that's gone on to inspire countless numbers of artists inside and outside of the genre. I mean, it's a must watch for every horror fan, new and old alike, and it's one of my favorite films to revisit this time of year. And I highly recommend you do the same. Up next, werewolves. That's right, we're talking our favorite werewolf films. Damon, what makes the werewolf genre so horrifying? The legacy of werewolves in horror films is almost as old as the genre itself. From Henry Hole to Lon Chaney Jr., The Legend of the Beast Within has both terrified and captivated audiences for decades, all with the simple nightmare vision of our most primal instincts being unleashed. The films play as a cautionary tale of what happens if we give in to those raw emotions that we battle so hard to suppress. Either the werewolf becomes a tragic character who feels nothing but remorse for losing control, or on the flip side, a dark and sinister monster who feels free from the shackles of society's norms, who now relishes killing underneath the blood-tinted moonlight. But regardless of what kind of tale is being told, the werewolf film and horror has proven to be a true pillar of the genre that will be thrilling audiences for many years to come. So, all right, quickly, once again, we've kept the focus on our countdown to more modern films, but we obviously more than recommend checking out the classic Universal Lon Chaney Wolfman films or Hammer's Curse of the Werewolf. Uh, they're all amazing and must-watches for any true horror fan. So, I actually didn't cheat this time, and I kept the countdown to only five films, uh, but with that being said, quick honorable mentions go to Werewolves Within and The Wolf of Snow Hollow. Uh, both films came out within the past year or so. Uh, they're both fantastic, and you can check out our full reviews for them in the archives. But anyway, let's go ahead and get into it. And now for the Amazing Nerd Show's Top 5 Werewolf Films. Number 5, Silver Bullet. Nobody knew who or what was responsible. They only knew it had to be stopped. Now, from the master of mystery and suspense, Stephen King's Silver Bullet. So Silver Bullet is an 80s classic that one could argue is more fun than scary. An adaptation of a Stephen King story where we see a small town rocked by a series of grisly murders when Marty, a child with a disability played by Corey Haim, discovers the truth about what's going on. And that truth is that the town's priest is a fucking werewolf. So thinking no one will believe what he saw, 
him and his sister take matters into their own hands, along with their crazy Uncle Red played by Gary Busey in a role that he was born for. So what really makes Silver Bullet unique is it's told from a child's perspective, and as a child who saw it when it first was released, this made it even more terrifying and relatable. And while the scares don't necessarily hold up for me as an adult, it's still a pretty damn entertaining film. And a film with an over-the-top finale that will leave you cheering out loud. And not many movies can say that. Number 4. Dog Soldiers A horror film with bite. You are. A bitch of a werewolf movie. Fighting! Dog soldiers. This film can easily be described as Call of Duty zombies with werewolves instead, but action aside, this movie has a great cast giving absolutely enjoyable performances. Dog Soldiers takes the horrors of war and makes the enemies werewolves as a squad on a routine training exercise finds themselves in the midst of a werewolf community's forest. While well, yes, this film's lower budget led to some eh, anemic looking werewolves at times, the cast deliver big time as the cast all just work so well off of each other. I mean, really, I got so into the team's dynamic and how they work together and you really feel it as you start to lose members from the squad especially after you see the other actors react to now losing another squad member it's one of the many reasons why i love this film and i definitely guarantee you guys will be cheering them on as well as they unload thousands of rounds into the night number three the howling and wait tonight i'm gonna show you something make you believe <laughs> The Howling. So The Howling is a film by legendary director Joe Dante. Uh, the movie follows Karen, a news anchor played by Dee Wallace, who's traumatized after surviving an experience with a serial killer who's stalking her. Sent to a strange retreat colony by her therapist as a form of treatment, she soon discovers she's living amongst a cult of werewolves. So even though The Howling is a cult classic, it sometimes feels like it gets overshadowed by American Werewolf in London. This is most likely to both films being released in the same year. But I mean, it's a real shame because they both feature groundbreaking effects and The Howling has Dante's signature sense of humor all over it. I mean, the movie could really be credited for being one of the first meta horror films of its kind. I mean, it's filled with Easter eggs and inside jokes. I mean, Dante really balances its stark nature with a wink and a smile. Plus, at the same time, the film really serves as a commentary about the self-help movement that was so prevalent during the decade. So really, when you take all this into account, and then you add a chilling, unforgettable ending, there's really no argument that The Howling doesn't deserve a seat at the table when discussing the greatest werewolf films of all time. Number two, Ginger Snaps. Just being normal teenage girls. I'm not dying in this room with you! Come on, come on. I'm not dying! Come on. I think she's gone. Not even related anymore. 
Ginger Snaps takes the curse of a werewolf and turns it into a coming of age tale that sees Catherine Isabel do a iconic performance as Ginger, a girl getting her period and becoming a werewolf along with her death enthusiast sister, Bridget, as played by Emily Perkins. With a refusal to use CGI, John Fawcett created an intensely fun werewolf film with plenty of gore and fun body horror, yet at the same time captured the awkwardness of puberty and the teenage experience wrapped in this horrifying tale. This is one that I definitely picked up from Blockbuster quite a few times, especially during the horror season. And I definitely think if you're going to be watching werewolf flicks this Halloween, you gotta add the Ginger Snaps franchise to your list. And the number one werewolf film. An American werewolf in London. Gotta believe me, David. Believe what? You're one of the undead, and I'm a werewolf. Tomorrow night's the full moon. You're gonna change. A what? You'll become. I know, I know. A monster. The absolute high bar when it comes to the subgenre. Not only is it one of the greatest werewolf films, but it's just plain and simple one of the greatest horror movies ever made. Directed by John Landis, An American Werewolf in London is a dark comedy masterpiece that went on to inspire many filmmakers in its aftermath. Two friends, David and Jack, are backpacking through the moors of Yorkshire when they're attacked by a werewolf with only David surviving. But unfortunately for David, he is now cursed to become a werewolf himself at the next full moon. And on top of everything, he's being haunted by his dead friend who's riding away before his eyes and pleading with him to kill himself before anyone else gets hurt. Landis finds the perfect balance between horror and comedy, all the while dressing it up with Rick Baker's Oscar-winning special effects that amazingly still hold up today. Baker and Landis add body horror to the mythos of the werewolf by showing just how painful the transformation would be. In a scene that's fully lit, for over four minutes, we witness David suffer as his body morphs into the wolf. It's film magic at its best and the gold standard in practical effects. Landis leans into the werewolf being a sympathetic, doomed figure in horror, and really following the blueprint laid out by the wolfman decades earlier and just putting a modern spin on it. Because guess what? It's a classic for a reason. But anyway, Often imitated but never duplicated, An American Werewolf in London has been leading the pack when it comes to werewolf films for the past 40 years since it's been released, and it's showing no signs of being dethroned anytime soon, really making it the obvious choice for the number one slot in our countdown. Up next, the best horror video games. So just like horror movies, horror video games are a beloved genre of media, and if anything can terrify its consumers more, as the developers put you in the shoes of horror flicks protagonists and make you figure out how to survive, or hell, puts you in the shoes of a monster as you rip apart your friends. Some tell unforgettable stories with unbelievable Oscar-worthy performances while others stick you in a dark room and have 2D images flash at you for that classic jump scare effect, you know? Uh, <laughs> everything from big budget studios to one-man teams are capable of putting out games that can scare the living hell out of you. And for my top five all-time horror games list, it comes down to how much a game either scared me or how much fun I had while playing it. Because at the end of the day, that's how a horror game should be measured in my eyes. Number 5. Dead Rising I'm a wartime photojournalist. I've seen it all. Horror, famine, death. The real stuff of nightmares. At least, 
That's what I thought. That was until I saw a corpse get up, walk, and kill. Dead Rising is an incredibly fun series, but its first game really kicked things off with a bang. Greatly influenced by Romero's and Snyder's Dawn of the Dead, players play as Frank West, a journalist that gets stuck in a shopping mall filled with a horde of zombies. Looking to break the story on the contagion, you must run around the mall taking on the undead and saving those you come across. This 2006 zombie horror survival sandbox was one that you could let yourself get lost in for hours and fucking hours, as the open world gameplay was so much fun. Allowing you to use nearly anything as a weapon each time you got into the game was a new and exciting experience, in which you never knew what hijinks you would get into next. Number 4. PT. Watch out. The gap in the door. It's a separate reality. Has a trailer for a movie ever terrified you more than the movie itself? P.T. was Kojima's attempt at making a thrilling way to tease what would have been his next upcoming game for Silent Hill. What it became was a legend on its own, as Konami split ways with Kojima and ultimately scrapped the project. This short demo psychologically terrifies its players as the main character awakens in a hallway inside a home and then taken for a loop as the player attempts to figure out the mystery of what's going on. During your passes through the hallways, you uncover a ghost named Lisa that cannot be stopped and will kill you. This demo was far from anything gamers had seen before. Usually you get a few enemies, you know, you shoot them up, and then boom, trailer. No, Kojima gave you something on par with an indie horror game and it effectively terrified you as you went in circles over and over again, um, getting into the player's head and then attacking them with an enemy they can't fight and they can't escape from. Those brave enough to reach the end were left with a teaser for a game that would never come. And ultimately the project we got with Death Stranding definitely wasn't what anyone expected, but the demo lives on in pure infamy as one of the scariest experiences you could have for a game you'll never play. Number three. Dead Space. Step one, crawl inside. Step two, the screws go tight. All around. Cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. Inspired by films like Event Horizon and Solaris, and also taking cues from games like Resident Evil 4, the Redwood Shores team would attempt to develop the most horrifying game experience they could imagine. What resulted was Dead Space. This survival horror game puts you in the shoes of a space miner named Isaac, in a ship full of mutated monsters called necromorphs, created by an ancient evil artifact called the Marker. This game is a visceral, gory experience with well-placed scares that keep you on the edge of your gaming chair at all times. Designed to freak you the fuck out at all times, this game picks at the psyche of Isaac and the player as you don't know what to trust or what the right thing to do is. Dead Space took the right cues from Horrorflix, spacing its scares in unpredictable manners, and focused on creating atmosphere with superior sound design and great use of score. The limb targeting as well, at the time, was some of the most brutal, gruesome uh, shit we've ever seen. <laughs> that really gave you that I'm playing a horror movie feel as you took turns with friends just trying to survive. Number 2. Silent Hill 2. 
Do I look like your girlfriend? No, my late wife. I can't believe it. You could be her twin. Your face, your voice, just your hair and clothes are different. My name is Maria. I don't look like a uh, ghost, do I? Silent Hill was a franchise meant to compete with the ever-popular Resident Evil. And while its name is nearly as synonymous amongst horror game fans, Silent Hill, in my opinion, is a much scarier experience. Silent Hill 2 has you play as James Sunderland, who embarks on a journey to find his dead wife after receiving a letter from her. What ensues is one of the most eerily and depressingly dark tales in video game history. Silent Hill fits right in with the J-horror genre of cinema, as it uses long, drawn-out, tension-filled scares rather than consistently jumping out at you. The developers Team Silent masterfully created disturbing images and created well thought out stories that left you the player feeling nothing but dread. It's a game that took me personally years to get into because it wasn't actiony and fun right off the back. It's a completely mature and dark um, piece about loss using psychological scares. This game is artwork, and I definitely recommend it for anyone looking for a more serious horror experience. And now the number one horror video game, Resident Evil 4. So nice you could join us, Mr. Scott Kennedy. You again. The sacred rite that's about to begin at this tower shall endow the girl with magnificent power. She will join us, become one of us. This is no ritual, it's terrorism. Isn't that a popular word these days? Not to worry, we've prepared a special ritual for you. <laughs> for starters, putting Resident Evil after Silent Hill wasn't an easy choice. What it came down to was how much fun I had while playing it, and Resident Evil 4 takes the cake when it comes to the entire franchise. And that includes the excellent remake so far as well. This third-person shooter takes protagonist Leon Kennedy out of Raccoon City and plops him in the midst of this crazy cultist village as the player is tasked with saving the president's daughter. Locked camera angles and in came that sweet third-person camera freeing you up from that, you know, that semi-linear feel of the past Resident Evil games. In came a new locked shooting mechanism that created a whole new sense of tension for the franchise as you were forced to make precise shots or become overwhelmed by enemies. Your hand is not held whatsoever as you run into horde after horde of crazy people with chainsaws. The game was a real challenge and at times frustrating as hell, but with fun game mechanics and a fun story, Resident Evil 4 balances horror and action unlike any of the other titles in the franchise. And yes, while it may not be the scariest game on this list, it surpasses the rest with the most memorable and fun gameplay that kicked off what would become the franchise's gold standard. Resident Evil 4 still holds up even after 15 years, but there is surely a new remake on the way. Up next, the best horror wrestling gimmicks. 29 bodies, 29 souls, and you, Undertaker, can present them to me one by one. And with each one, you'll get closer and closer to your championship. My 
my sole purpose in this lifeless world is to collect the souls of the unfortunate people they cross me. But anyway, like I said at the top, uh, for the first time in the four years that we've actually done Horror Month, we're going to carry it over to wrestling and talk some of our favorite horror-themed wrestlers of all time. Um, we're not going to have all the bells and whistles that we usually have attached to our horror countdowns, uh, since wrestling is usually pretty bare-boned. But uh, I figure, Christian, are you prepared to do a top 10 or you want to do a top five? I mean, I have five wrestlers, but I'm down to talk as many as you'd like. <laughs> I just don't know if I have that many. You know, you know, I can't contain my list to top uh -huh. five. Come on, man. <laughs> no matter how much I beg. I know. I know. <laughs> Sorry. My number 10 pick is Papa Shango. Uh, a character I thought visually was just absolutely stunning. He's like this voodoo priest uh, played by none other than Charles Wright, who went on to play the Godfather. Um, but yeah, no, I think the first time I saw the character, he was making the Ultimate Warrior spew uh, black goo from his mouth. So that always nice. left an impression <laughs> on the young Damon. So uh, that's why he made my list. I actually was hoping that the character would make a comeback eventually. Um, and I guess there were plans in place for him to come back as Papa Shango at one point, but then they kind of canned it last minute. So um, hmm. I know he actually does conventions as the character though. So I would love to get a fucking autograph from Papa Shango. No, absolutely. I like, I love the design because it looks just like one of those um, old Bond villains. Yes. I, I'm assuming that's what they probably based it off of. <laughs> no, probably you're right, right? All right, well, my number uh, nine pick is none other than Abyss. Um, I loved Abyss in TNA. Um, a great hardcore wrestler. Mm -hmm. Tons of fun, imaginative matches. I mean, this guy was so dedicated to his character. And they really went an extra mile to tell, like, you know, his story. And they stuck to it. I loved his early days when he was paired with uh, Sinister Minister. Even up to the point when he becomes a Hulkamaniac. So, uh, yeah, I love Abyss. I don't think he gets enough credit. I know he's working behind the scenes right now for uh, WWE. I know Joseph Park is pretty much, like, retired at this point. Um, he did have a brief, like, role on screen with AJ Styles for a little bit on SmackDown as his, like, lawyer. Uh, you know, and he actually wrestled as Joseph Parks uh, in uh, TNA. I think he was supposed mm -hmm. to be some kind of relative of Abyss. So it's just ridiculous. But anyway, um, <laughs> I would love to see Abyss actually like make an appearance in, in WWE, like briefly, like maybe in like a Rumble or something like that. I think that'd be fun. I don't know legally like if they have the rights to the name though, um, but I'm sure they could probably work something out with like TNA at this point. I don't know. Call him the abysmal guy or something. I don't know. Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> that's horrible. Did I call him TNA? Impact. Impact. Next on my list is actually a wrestler I just got into, uh, Danhausen. I'm really, like, late to the game. And I'll be honest, I think I've only seen about five or ten matches of his at this point. <laughs> but I've got this weird niche thing I'm into, which is watching wrestlers do unboxings and go on toy hunts. It's, it's really very specific. I, yeah. <laughs> my wife is concerned. <laughs> so, but I don't know. Like, it's my happy place. I just watch these videos for hours. But on one of these vlogs that I'm watching, Danhausen was along for the ride. And he's 
I don't know. There's this guy with like Pazuzu like makeup on and he's got these like weird like Nosferatu mannerisms with this insane voice. I was like, what the fuck is this? What am I watching? <laughs> Come to find out later on, he's like this perfect mix of like, I don't know, like think of like Sven Gulli. If Sven Gulli was a wrestler, like an old school, like horror TV show host and who happens to be a wrestler. Like that's pretty much what Dan Housen is. You know, and uh, come to find out, he's actually awesome in the ring, too. Like, he, he I, that's great. I mean, <laughs> gimmick aside, which he actually like pours like teeth into people's mouths, which is just horrendous. Um, but like, he's actually a really good wrestler. So, I, I don't know. I, I love Dan Housen, but I don't know. Like, his videos are my happy place right now. Like, I've pretty much like gone down the rabbit hole of Dan Housen. Um, he wrestles for Ring of Honor. So hopefully I'll actually get to see more of his matches. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I definitely, if you don't know who Dan Housen is, go ahead and check him out. Uh, every time I see a picture of Dan Housen, I just think of like King Diamond for some yes, reason. No, absolutely. That's the first <laughs> thing I actually thought of too until I realized, oh, this is totally Pazuzu. Um, he's actually a really good wrestler too, though, which is hilarious. No, I'll have to check him out. I've only heard great things from you about Dan Housen. <laughs> yeah, the last couple of weeks, I've definitely been down the the Dan Housen rabbit hole. So. <laughs> so moving on, my next pick was Vampiro. I only really know his career from, you know, late in the like, you know, twilight years of WCW, um, where he also had to deal with a lot of shitty booking. Uh, but his look and everything and his style of wrestling, I was just mesmerized by. Um, I loved the look. I mean, he hung out with the Misfits, which is one of my favorite bands, even though it was kind of the shitty version of <laughs> that band after Glenn Danzig. That's neither here nor there. Uh, but no, I was I was I wanted huge things for Vampiro and I never quite got there. I think he had like a mini feud with Sting at one point. I really thought the sky was the limit for, you know, the guy. And of course, you know, WCW was WCW. So they totally like ruined him. So I think this is my number six pick. Um, <laughs> it, it, just hear me out. My number six pick is Doink the Clown. The early version of Doink the Clown. Uh -huh, Matt Bourne, uh -huh. Doink the Clown. Uh, the character was just great. Like, he was this complete psychopath in clown makeup. He had a real, like, viciousness to him, um, where he was actually scary as a character. Like, watch those old promos. He's terrifying. Um, I mean, they went on to ruin the character. I think Matt Bourne ended up getting fired or leaving the company, so then they replaced him. And then they made the character a lot more, like, kid-friendly after that. I mean, they gave him, like, Dink, his little sidekick. I mean, it, it was pretty fucking absurd, but like that original version of Doink the Clown, at first they were really like creative with the character. Um, he would come out to this like, you know, like your typical clown music. And then when he would win a match and like destroy his opponent, his music would come like really like dark and twisted when he would like leave the ring. So I just love that aspect. And it was super like creative for a time where you had all these like really weird, cheesy cartoon characters. Like mm -hmm. he actually kind of stood out on his own. Well, for my number five pick, uh, it, it's got to be a legendary character, one that was supposed to go up against the likes of The Undertaker. And that's and that's the character of Mordecai. You know, this oh, great God, Christian wrestler <laughs> that just had such a short lived time in WWE but left a massive impression on a young fellow like me. Yeah, I think you're the only one, though. Um, that's a dude all in white, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like White Undertaker, pretty he's much. Even, 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, he even has, like, the really, like, bleached, like, hair. Yeah. Right? Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Eyebrows, everything was bleach white. I, I feel bad for, like, whoever told him to go set this all up and... You know, this is probably going to be a big deal because they they did have plans for him to be like the Undertaker's fucking arch nemesis, and it went nowhere. Yeah, and you know, it took a long time for that shit to like grow out of his hair. So uh-huh. <laughs> he's probably still doing it on the Indies right now. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> That's really your number five pick, though, for real. Because I mean, I wasn't really around for characters like Gangrel and stuff like that That's so true. it's like since you're younger like your generation had more of a reality tilt to their characters uh-huh. um me growing up in like you know the the early 80s like i had all the fucking characters so so my fifth pick is none other than kevin sullivan the taskmaster um he's a ridiculously fun character he was a satan worshiper <laughs> Uh, he always had, like, a stable of goofs surrounding him. The Yeti and the Zodiac. And they had, like, Earthquake dressed up like a shark or something at one point. Um, but yeah, no, I loved hearing him quote allegedly passages from the Necronomicon in this, like, thick Boston accent. Uh, it's just it's just <laughs> 80s goodness. Um, I just actually watched The Dark Side of the Ring, and I, I didn't even know this, but his character was the character that introduced the world to Luna Vachon. Um, she was like a reporter like interviewing him and like there was some kind of like melee or something like that and he ends up punching her and then like she gets like infected by his evilness and like slowly goes crazy and you see her like shaving her head on screen and everything. I had no okay. idea and I love <laughs> Luna uh, but I had no idea that was like the origin of her character. So some really fun creative shit going on. So yeah Kevin Sullivan's definitely on my list. But anyway, what's your next pick, Christian? Well, I went kind of the the voodoo man character of Boogeyman. Uh, he is just a strange dude. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say shows it, up in the back all the time. Is voodoo <laughs> actually what Boogeyman's practicing? I don't know, man. Does anyone know what he's actually practicing? I, just kind of just eating worms around. in the corner, right? <laughs> but he was a character that like was always in the games and stuff like that. So I always picked him up and did weird stuff with him storyline wise. Nah. So I, I, you know, I have I have different ties to him. Okay, <laughs> that's fine. That's pretty much your generation's Papa Shango, honestly. So exactly, I can only remember like one serious feud with the Boogeyman, right? Did he wrestle Booker T? at wrestlemania i think so i'm gonna have to double check it i'm gonna have to double check i think he like spit worms in charmel's uh mouth at wrestlemania (laughs) i wouldn't be surprised (laughs) poor booker t man (laughs) that guy's definitely had some shitty wrestlemanias Uh Uh, so my next pick is early mankind uh this is mankind in the boiler room playing with rats pulling out his hair stabbing his leg with some weird foreign object after matches his music was actually the opposite of uh doinks like his music would like for his intro would be like super like dark and then when he would win his match it would go super light and like peaceful (laughs) as he sat in the corner like pulling out his hair so like i love that early version of the character i've been the later incarnation of the character became much more of like you know i don't know like almost a happy uncle character um but it was still fun but yeah no that like early original version of mankind was definitely horrifying and you know super creative at the time my number three for my list uh is kane <laughs> Fair enough. uh 
growing up uh when i first got into wrestling and stuff like that i would i was religiously looking up the storylines of wrestlers and seeing what you know on youtube on like what the past was like what what the continuity of these characters was even though wwe doesn't give a shit half the time mm. uh, <laughs> and i That's fell true. in love with the story of kane of like being the you know this murderous brother of undertaker and stuff like that even though it was fucking ridiculous i was so into it at the time uh, and even you know even in the later years when you know team hell no and all that stuff was always something fun even though he was always kind of maybe like a b plus player on on their on their end when it came to storylines i definitely thought kane was always still kind of cool yeah and i don't think he gets enough credit for his flexibility as a performer because think mm. about all the fucking crappy, like, versions of that character we end up getting, like, eventually. Like, Corporate Kane, when he had to fucking yeah. wrestle in slacks. <laughs> <laughs> that was the shits. That was horrible. Um, mm-hmm. What's your favorite Kane moment? Probably him stalking Lita. That was pretty... Oh, my God, I forgot about that. Pretty cringe, but horrible. <laughs> Don't they get together eventually, though? Yeah, they kind of, like, they do this whole, like, fake marriage thing, and it turns out to be, like, a trap. <laughs> You know, what an awful it's, message. It's how it always goes. <laughs> <laughs> so mine's got to be either when he sets JR on fire or when he, like, sticks the um, spark plugs on a, on a Shane McMahon's balls. <laughs> you remember that? Yes. <laughs> I, also, I also loved when he debuted the voice box thing, when he was, like, talking through that. At uh-huh. first, he wasn't supposed to be able to talk. And then he had him doing like this, like like horrible voice box thing that I'm sure they got like straight from South Park at the time. So uh, yeah, but yeah, Kane like saying "suck it" through that goddamn thing was priceless. <laughs> I just loved everyone's disappointment to when he unmasked and it just looked like a normal dude underneath it. Yeah, that was <laughs> with a bad haircut. Uh huh. <laughs> he's had a rough career, but he still had some great moments. And he was a pillar, you know, really, of WWE for, mm-hmm. like, decades. Well, actually, Christian, my number three pick is also Kane. Uh, for everything that you mentioned, um, and then some, I still remember his debut at Hell in the Cell. Um, they did a great job of, mm-hmm. like, building up that whole, like, you know, Undertaker storyline beforehand with Paul Bearer. Uh, you knew that he was coming, but you didn't know what to expect. And you got this fucking monster of a man, like, ripping off the cage of the door. Uh, he just looked, gi- like, he dwarfed the Undertaker. So, I mean, he was terrified in that original, like, red mask and everything. Um, that's absolutely my favorite version of the character. Silent is scary as all hell. Um, and you know what? Glenn Jacobs does not get enough credit as a performer, because what he could do in the ring as a big man is really impressive. All right, well, my number two is none other than Bray Wyatt. Um, Bray Wyatt as a whole, because I just think everything he's done since, you know, starting in WWE, you know, turning into this character that, you know, is just this cult leader, um, going all the way up to becoming the Fiend and everything like that. He's just always been able to captivate his audiences and do these, like, crazy, you know, long speeches, but they they hold the audience and they get the people's attention into his storylines. You know, whether those storylines actually went anywhere, whether they actually became something you know that yes. that actually held. Are you trying to say booking aside? <laughs> booking aside, yes. He's able to I, I overcome shitty booking. You're right. Yes, <laughs> he he was great. Even like The Rock pointed it out. Like this guy has a fucking ton of talent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just I'm while I'm disappointed what happened to him in WWE. I think 
he's still got a great career ahead of him and you know he's he's a fucking horrifying master here uh you know he can come up with some of the craziest storylines and i can't imagine what he'll do next um in whatever company that he joins yeah especially now since he's like off vince's leash yeah you know i'm i I have to believe that that company is probably like stifling his creativity to a certain extent so um yeah i'm really excited to see what the future holds for you know uh the fiend uh what's your favorite version of bray though is it bray wyatt the cult leader or is it bray as the fiend i think i i like the fiend a bit more just because there's a little bit more to it mm-hmm. you know everything with the playhouse yeah. and what you got with the like puppets just hiding in different areas <laughs> and like that ability to just play with storylines and draw things out what i thought was cooler at the time but mm-hmm. you know the matches sucked so yeah <laughs> i don't i think a lot of that wasn't his fault though i think it's the way that they overbooked them was really the problem mm-hmm. i mean you remember him wrestling in that red light Yes. You know, and then like, I don't know, they just made him too powerful. Like you couldn't hurt him for like the first handful of his matches. It just didn't make any sense. Like they booked themselves in a corner almost when it came to him. I think my the fa- my favorite moment that came out of The Fiend was not not the match itself, but the, the moment ap- that happened right after that with X-Pac. Uh, I, I loved the DQ finish in a Hell in a Cell that led to X-Pac on like this the bump or whatever they call that show that happens afterwards um just being like well you can't have a a dq and all these other guys that are like you know young company kids are like uh, don't know what to say oh on the bump yeah fuck that show (laughs) (laughs) i don't think i've watched more than a minute of the bump so um (laughs) no yeah no it's absolutely ridiculous you can't have a dq in a hell of a cell it makes no no sense so um, but apparently Seth Rollins was also furious at that finish and <laughs> wanted to kill Vince McMahon, according to an interview he just did uh, with Stone Cold. So uh, you weren't alone. Uh, but yeah, no, I remember the <laughs> outcry. I mean, people were literally canceling their WWE like subscriptions at that uh-huh. point. So, uh, but yeah, no. Uh, well, once again, Christian, ditto. Uh, <laughs> I also had Bray Wyatt as my number two. Uh, I actually think I like the cult leader version of Bray more. I thought he was, okay. I mean, I love everything he did with The Fiend, but I mean, but when it comes to like the original version of Bray, like, you know, in the ring, he could fucking go and he could, you know, be scary with like just simple, like little things, like his little bridge and like what he would do in the corner. Like those moments were awesome. Um, and some of that earlier stuff was just awesome. Like, I mean, when he had that choir of kids with the sheet masks on singing, uh, we got the whole world in our hands. I mean, goddamn. That is good shit, Christian. Once again, he had overcome so much bad booking. I mean, it's amazing Mm -hmm. that, you know, he went on to be the champion a couple times, you know, regardless. And fans were still behind him, um, even though they felt like they had to beat him almost like every fucking pay-per-view. I think the guy went like three years without winning a feud. It was insane. Well, with my number one, I think it's painfully obvious it's going to be The Undertaker. Uh... He's, he's probably one of the main reasons I got into wrestling when I did uh, back during like that SmackDown run era where Teddy Long was just fucking sending everyone to The Undertaker to their doom. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was a good time. I enjoyed, you know, the history of The Undertaker, um, everything with like even the the crazy stuff with like uh, the ministry and the corporate ministry. You know, I I enjoyed 
you know what they were able to do with this character throughout the years and he's been such a just unbelievable badass on top of being this crazy supernatural character um at times you know even the american badass period was a good time for him it's just like there's there's never been a wrong moment for the undertaker uh, until maybe when he lost but even then you know that's just part of that some felt like the natural conclusion to the character's story i uh, guess i, <laughs> <laughs> I still hate I the mean, fact that he lost that match at WrestleMania, but that's just me. Uh, there's also that moment when Maven threw him out of the Royal Rumble. That was pretty horrible, too. But <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, sure. Should the story have ended with Shawn Michaels? Yes, uh, but mm. they chose Brock Lesnar, whatever. Uh-huh. <laughs> and of course, my number one pick is also The Undertaker. Um, and really, there's no other way that it could have possibly gone. I mean, it has to be The Undertaker. I mean, no one's been able to take a gimmick and really, like, lived it the way The Undertaker has and make it, like, last through decades and make it still relevant mm. every fucking year. Um, you know, I mean, the versatility that takes alone is amazing. I mean, he's known, like, the right time and the right place to always, like, you know, tweak the character a little here and there. Um, you know, like I said, to stay relevant and important, you know, in... Uh, a highly competitive atmosphere like the WWE. Um, you know, he's always been a mainstay and he still is. It sounds like he's going to end up showing up at Saudi Arabia this week. <laughs> Apparently he appeared with Pitbull or something. I mean, from like burying people alive to throwing mankind off the top of the hell in the cell um, to crucifying Stone Cold. I mean, Undertaker has done it all. I mean, he's died and come back to life like multiple times at this point. I mean, it's got to be the greatest gimmick of all time. Like, that can't even be argued. So, um, and he's always, like, kept that horror aspect of the character in the forefront, honestly. Except for maybe, like, the year or two he was the American badass. But he was still terrifying as that version of the character. So, uh-huh. Uh, my favorite version is probably the Satanic Undertaker. You know, when he was like, you know, trying to kidnap Stephanie McMahon. Um, I love that version of the uh-huh. character. All the chanting <laughs> and just like druids. Druids Crucifying every night. People. Yes. <laughs> Go figure. That's my favorite version of the character. But yes, no. <laughs> but anyway, that's why Undertaker's number one on my list. Well, that does it for this week. That's right, and as a friendly reminder, if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast platform, remember to subscribe, rate, and give us a five-star review. Exactly. It sure does help an independent podcast like ours continue to grow. And while you're at it, make sure to tell a friend. Plus, if you like any of the stories we talked about on this week's episode, make sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to catch the full articles, trailers, memes, and more. That's right. You can follow us at Amazing Nerd Show on all social media platforms. And hey, if you're looking for extra content, make sure to catch our streams every weekend on Twitch, plus YouTube videos Monday through Friday. Want to support the show further? You can head over to tpublic.com and get yourself some Amazing Nerd Show merch. We've got t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. And if you post what you bought and tag us on social media, we'll send you some additional nerd swag if you live in the United States. Well, all right, Damon, what are we talking about next week? Well, Christian, knock on wood, we should be hopefully back to our regular scheduled programming, bringing you all the latest in nerd news, and also recapping the latest episode of Hawkeye. Plus, I'm going to talk a little bit of anime with Super Crooks on Netflix, and we will be talking, of course, AEW's Winter is Coming. My name's Christian. And my name's Damon. 
And that was The Amazing Nerd Show. Well, what do you know? I asked for Final Cut, and I got it! <laughs> now that's entertainment! <laughs>